Rocky Mountain Institute, Conservation X Labs, and the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development to host the U.S. launch of the Global Cooling Prize. Um, when the uh, Global Cooling Prize Conservation X Labs folks came to us and suggested um, that we might do this event together, it was sort of a no-brainer for uh, the folks in my program, the folks in our development program here, and the folks in our India program here, because the nexus of innovation and development challenges and climate change are something that we all work really hard on. And this is a really innovative uh, project and program that kind of brings all those things together. So we're very, very pleased uh, to be able to work with, uh, with these groups today to bring on this event. Um, the purpose of today's event is to shed light on this prize, and not the truck in the alleyway, uh, and to discuss the importance of uh, bringing uh, new technologies uh, to solve the, the increasing demand for residential cooling while not exacerbating um, the very real and present danger that is climate change. Uh, we're especially pleased uh, to host former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy and World Bank Senior Director for Climate Change John Rome, who will deliver keynote addresses on the global cooling challenge within the framework of uh, thinking about climate change and public health and then also thinking about investment and, and technology scaling. Um, following these keynote addresses, we're going to have two very diverse panels of experts to talk about um, the trends in global cooling, uh, uh, demand for cooling that we're seeing around the world, potential technological solutions, and the ever-present challenge of how you take those solutions and really bring them to scale. Uh, we're really pleased to have so many people here today. I do see a number of new faces, and so I am obliged to ask you to please just take a moment to familiarize yourself with the uh, emergency exits. We certainly don't anticipate something happening, but this is our building. We take your security very seriously, so please do take a moment to familiarize with yourself with those exits uh, in case of, uh, of, of some unplanned emergency. Uh, now I'm going to turn it over to Alex Degen, who is the CEO and co-founder of Conservation X Labs, to also welcome you. Please, Alex. Hey, I'm Alex Dagan, CEO and co-founder of Conservation X Labs. We're one of the partners on the challenge. Uh, but first, I want to thank you guys all for coming uh, to hear about the prize and listening to this actually really spectacular uh, group of speakers that we have uh, today that are going to blow our minds about the potential for cooling technology. Uh, and as we know from Project Drawdown, this is one of the most important things that we can do. And we can do it not just through government action, but through the actions of the private sector. I'm excited to help introduce today's program in which we'll, experts will be speaking after me that will convince you that the Global Cooling Prize has the potential to make significant impact toward achieving the world's climate goals. And you're going to see why there's a need for sort of disruptive breakthroughs in technology in room AC. But we also plan to ex discuss the existing technologies as well as future technologies that are on the horizon and what they mean for climate-friendly cooling products. The second half of the program is, is equally as important because we know that technology by itself is insufficient. We then will look at the scaling mechanisms and opportunities to get climate-friendly cooling technologies deployed globally. Because if the prize itself just ends up with a prize, we will not have done our job. Right? Unless we get these technologies to scale and we get them deployed. And what that means from a financial 
perspective, what it means from a regulatory perspective, what it means from a policy perspective, uh, will be unsuccessful. But we need to act quickly and proceed with great urgency if we're going to avoid the warming of this planet beyond a point that's irreversible in which we destroy the ability for mankind to survive here, let alone the plant and animal life we share this planet with. Uh, which brings me to this question of why does a conservation organization get interested in air conditioning? Um, and so I want to just take a second to just talk about uh, Conservation X Labs. Um, and it really is from this perspective that conservation for a long time was this idea of a return to Arcadia, of utopia, of unspoiled wilderness. Our idea was that humans were bad for nature. To save nature, we remove humans, right? That's all we had to do. And then everything would just be fine. And you know, 35 years ago, the society that I've been part of, the Society for Conservation Biology, I've been on the Board of Governors, I founded the DC chapter, was created. We also had the National Forum that actually coined the word biodiversity and brought it to common use. And we've seen the products of conservation scale uh, in terms of things like national parks. In fact, I've built national parks around the world, including the first national park in Afghanistan, uh, Banda Amir National Park, which I wrote about recently. Um, but the question is, how are we doing? And you guys might guess where we're going. If you've seen the recent news from the IPBES, you know, we're at risk of losing over uh, a million species on this planet. And the fact is, those are probably unestimates. We believe that we are seeing an extinction rate of a thousand times that of background extinctions, and that the very species we have studied, which is only about 20% of the known species on this planet, are the ones that have the very characteristics that probably make them more robust to extinction. Right? So we've got this problem. And in fact, conservation itself might have done more harm than actually good. This very concept of the polar bear on the ice floe, rather than encouraging action, actually in some ways discourages action from what we're doing. Even concepts like the endangered species list have been shown to drive up demand for the very species we're trying to protect through those lists. We tend to fight against human behavior rather than harness it, and we have tend historically to prioritize the species that we're going to pr protect, the places we're going to protect, but not how we're going to actually save them. And that's what we've been making Conservation X Labs for, to focus on the underlying drivers of extinction rather than its symptoms, things like climate change and things like cooling. Focus on the revolutionary solutions over the evolutionary ones, things that are scalable and financially sustainable in terms of what we're doing. And we do it through prizes, challenges, mass collaboration, as well as through our own engineering in our own labs. Uh, and we were deeply inspired by Project Drawdown and what they did. And Project Drawdown led us to the cooling technology, because if you can imagine it, billions of people moving into middle class are going to want a few things. They're going to want air conditioning and refrigeration. They're going to want meat and dairy. They're going to want cars. And unless we think of new pathways for industrialization, unless we think of more efficient units that are orders of magnitude more efficient than we have now, we're going to be in trouble. I am really honored to introduce our keynote speaker, former administrator of the US Environmental Protection Agency and current director of Harvard Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Gina McCarthy. Her 35-year career in public service has been dedicated to environmental protection and to public health. As EPA Administrator under Barack Obama, she was the nation's leading advocate for common sense strategies to protect 
public health and the environment, including efforts to protect climate change. Her leadership led to significant federal, state, and local action on critical issues related to the environment, economic growth, energy, and transportation. She also led the U.S. on the global stage during the negotiation of the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which was ratified in 2016. This is, as many of you know, a legally binding accord that will help phase out worldwide use of powerful global warming chemicals, hydrofluorocarbons, used in air, conditioning, air conditioners and refrigeration. Part of the reason we asked Gina to speak today. Otherwise, she's also brilliant. But <laughs> since leaving Washington, McCarthy has been a fellow at the Kennedy School of Government's Institute of Politics, the Menchel Senior Leadership Fellow at Harvard School of Public Health. She's professor of the practice of public health in the Department of Environmental Health at the Chan School and director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure and honor to introduce you to Gina McCarthy. Thank you, Alex. That was a great introduction and also on time. This never happens. So I'll try slowing us out. How's that? Uh, no, I won't. Um, I am really excited to be here. First of all, let me thank CSIS Energy uh, and National Security Program, Rocky Mountain Institute, Conservation X Labs, and the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development, not just for inviting me here today, but for your support. Um, of this cooling prize, which I happen to think is really cool. <laughs> Pun intended. But it, it, is, it is really nice to be here at the, at the U.S. launch of the Global Cooling Prize, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for my colleagues in India to be participating in this and supporting it. It means a lot. It means a lot to me personally. I think it should mean a lot to us in this country to understand how important these issues are and also to have a partner who can help us broaden the uptake of technology that come out of this prize. So it's, it's really cool. And as many of you know, I did work with India and nearly 200 countries to, to craft the Kigali Amendment. I'm still extraordinarily proud of that effort and the way that countries across the world came together. They came together because it was serious business and also because we gave out a lot of chocolates at night when all of the deals were being cut. Uh, but it was also, I think, probably the last time I was excited about any announcement coming out of Washington, D.C., in a good way. I've been excited about many others, but not in a good way. Uh, so it is, it is great. And I am very pleased that I think I can help support this effort in a way that is, is very important, um, because I have decided that I can create a bubble around the beltway and hold in all of that hot air for a considerable period of time and buy you an opportunity opportunity to actually get this done um, because I am a little bit sick of the hot air that keeps coming out of this place and I think we should cool it down. What do you think? But it is, uh, but it is great to be here. Um, I, I, uh, I happen to 
be focused a lot on what continues to go on in the climate space. I am focused on what we have to do to protect people from things like the heat that we're already experiencing, as well as the challenge that that heat is going to pose in our future years to such a large number of people across the world today. And what's most important to think about, if you wonder whether this is an important initiative, think about the people that are going to be hurt the most. It, it, it is all the most vulnerable. It is the elderly. It is the young. It is the poor. We don't just have a responsibility to look to help in this area. We have a moral responsibility to act. Because this isn't about polar bears. It is about us, it is about our future, it is about our families, it is about our children. This is personal, not far away. This is about our moral responsibility to take action to help those who don't have an ability of their own to protect themselves. We know this, we have to act on it, and we have to be in this fight. And part of this fight is bringing in the private sector. It's not just relying on government intervention, but it's about driving innovation into the process. What I miss most about this administration, not participating in climate but instead choosing to deny the science, is that the federal government's best role in many cases is to ignite innovation. Isn't that what mission in innovation was, that was all about? Isn't that what DOE and their efforts to engage this was all about? It's about getting young people to realize that it's not about talking about the problem, it's about solving the problem. It's about driving new solutions that not only connect the, correct the problem, but drive new jobs, new economic opportunities, new growth. So really the challenge uh, that, I that I think we all face with climate change is we have been too impersonal about it. We've talked about it as a planetary polar bear glacier issue, and I'm tired of it. I love polar bears, not close up, but I like them, they're fine. But frankly, I like my kids better. I like my grandson. This isn't about polar bears, it is about us. And, and that is what we have to remember, that we are dealing with a problem that is perhaps the biggest public health challenge of our time. But we are also dealing with the biggest opportunity we have if we think about investing in those public health problems on our way to a sustainable and more just future. Because climate change is about carbon pollution. It is about the fact that pollution is not an equal opportunity killer. It goes after those most vulnerable. So if you don't think we have a moral obligation to address these public health challenges more effectively, I would remind you that it is an equity issue. It is a justice issue. It is simply not fair for us to have the ability to protect ourselves from the heat we're seeing when one third of the population live in places where the heat is already intolerable and in a few years that will go up to half of the population. And most of those are suffering from climate impacts that this country significantly contributed to. So step up here. Let's stop being 
depressed about what isn't happening and let's spark new solutions to come to the table. That's what this prize is all about. It's not to bemoan and be depressed, it's to be active. It's to actually do something and put our innovation where we need it most. To those who are most vulnerable, to those who deserve to be protected, to ourselves, to our future, and to our children's future. What is wrong with that picture? Let's go, let's move, let's act. Thank you very much. Well, so you have some thoughts on the issue. No, I've never really <laughs> considered this at all. Mm. Well, thank you. I just want to say, you know, as somebody, as many of us I know here who have dedicated much of our careers and our, our personal time to this issue, it's a really good thing to have somebody like you in town with the energy and the foresight on the importance of this issue. So I want to just thank you for that, uh, you. for those comments thank very you. much. Yeah. So you've said before a number of times that you don't believe in being a defeatist about this problem, no. right? And you're not in Washington a lot, which can be a good thing at this stage. I think there, there are some positive things happening which we can talk yes. about, but where are you in the work that you're doing now seeing the biggest opportunities for addressing some of these challenges? Well, it's probably both good news and bad news that people across the United States are beginning to understand that climate change is real and it's already happening and already impacting them. Mm -hmm. The bad news is that it's true. Uh, the good news is that they're finally, you know, sort of getting activated. So I, I you know, I, I have been in the, the field of, of really public health for a long time because EPA is a public health agency. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we love birds and bunnies, but we count how many kids have asthma attacks. Sure. Yeah. You know, that's where we are and whether you can get clean drinking water. And what I see happening and have always seen this is that when the federal government decides to go to sleep for a while, sort of democracy wakes up <laughs> and that's what I'm seeing now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, first of all, I'm not going to be uh, defeatist because first of all, I am a terrible loser, <laughs> absolutely miserable, as my husband and children will tell you. You know, I've beat my kids at checkers since they were two years old, and I'm not going to stop now. You know, I, I just, and, and the other thing is, I just don't feel like there's a reason to be depressed right now. You know, it doesn't mean I'm not disappointed, mm -hmm. but the work that we're seeing going on at other levels of government, both here and in other countries, is astounding. Mm -hmm. And what we're really trying to ignite here uh, with this prize and elsewhere is really the focus on solutions that can matter, that can make real difference. That's why it's really important because there's a lot of capital left on the sidelines. We do not have investment that is commensurate with the economic challenge of climate change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're acting as if it's too expensive to fix it when it's too expensive to let it continue. And so this is just a fun way, I think, mm -hmm. of sparking something, of yeah. changing that dynamic, yeah. of starting to be positive, of starting to focus on solutions. Yeah. And yeah. that's why I think it's really important, especially to engage the young people. Because I'm at the School of Public Health because those students will not tolerate the inequities in this world anymore. They've just had it. They think something's desperately wrong. I agree with them, and they're going to fix it, even if it's over, uh, you know, our dead bodies. I so I'm perfectly happy to roll over and let them run it. <laughs> 
some people don't do that. Uh, the, I, I do think, you know, one of the interesting things, and I want to get back to this equity yep. issue because I do think it is an important frame for how we're thinking about this challenge. But, you know, when I think back on both your career and the kinds of things that you did at, at, at EPA and the kinds of things that you do at Harvard, you know, information, right, yes. it plays a huge yeah. role in this. And, and there's often a lot of, you know, worry among our community that we just don't convey information yes. correctly yep. about this. But we, you know, we had uh, the Climate Impact Lab, which is another group that's doing really great work to sort of help people see on a much more granular level the impacts of climate change in their lives. And we've made some real inv yep. advancements in being yep. able to do that. How do you think the challenge of conveying information to people, not just about the nature of the problem, but where they can go find solutions. How has that changed over the period of time you were doing this? It, particularly, yeah. you know, in the in the sort of conveying of, of science and- the I think Alex hit the nail on the head when he was talking about communication and how we do this, because he's right. We haven't really paid attention to the quirkiness of human behavior yeah. and how we hear and what motivates us to act. Mm -hmm. That's where we made really big mistakes. Mm -hmm. We thought that it was all about terrifying people with the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a problem with terrifying people is they don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're just normal animals. We either deny or we just stand in place and freeze. And that's what we did really going on 30 years mm -hmm. now or, or more. I mean, we've known that this was a problem since the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've done so little about it. And, and I think it's because we have, we just fail to connect with what motivates people to act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and it's just not continuing to focus on the problem. It is really all about motivating them to move forward. Mm -hmm. and, and what we've seen recently is that the health message works extraordinarily well to motivate, mm -hmm. which doesn't surprise me because I've been using that for 40 years mm -hmm. to get things done. Mm -hmm. And people care about themselves and their families. They should. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It should be their primary sure. concern. Yeah. And we just have to make it personal and relevant to them. And we have to focus on solutions. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest um, things that sort of Many things drive me crazy, um, and my mother would say it's not a drive, it's merely a putt. <laughs> but many things drive me nuts, and one of them is that we shouldn't really be fighting about moving towards a low carbon or a zero carbon future. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we made the decision to burn fossil fuels you know, in the hominid era, you know, the <laughs> Homo erectus. I mean, we're talking a long time ago. Let's think about what the future looks like moving forward. And if you look at it, it is a, a future that is healthier. Mm -hmm. It's a future that is cleaner. It's a future that is more just and more equitable. Mm -hmm. And it's a future that you can grow new economies around. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be the economies that are growing the most in the United States and elsewhere. What are we fighting about? Mm -hmm. Why do I want to scare people instead of tell them to run to this future? What is stopping us? That's why this innovation challenge is, is really fun yeah. because it's really the enticing part, not the scaring part. Yeah. And that's what we have to, we have to just talk in more normal ways. And scientists do drive me nuts too. That's why I hang around with them. I try to tell them that speaking English is, you know, and when you're in, 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 you know, when you can and speaking clearly is probably a good thing. Um, rather than talk about probabilities and statistics. Oh my God in heaven. 
So it's just really important for all of you smart people to, to sort of get with me and, and I'll tell you how to talk about it. If I get it, everybody will. So we just have to be clearer and talk about it in a way that people can understand and not be afraid yeah, of. Yeah. Well, I would just want to say I totally agree with you on the misunderstanding about the opportunity side of the equation. I think one of the things that we found, particularly even in, in the current political context, that folks in industry and a lot of people understand that low carbon energy solutions Absolutely. are are not uh, uh, more expensive or not uh, you know cost uncompetitive and those types of things and that really has changed i think it takes it takes industry and it takes people a while to sort of realize how to enact on those new behaviors, right? Because they're used to doing the same things, but we're seeing across the energy industry and across a whole group of communities, state and local level yep, particularly, yep, yep. understanding that the opportunity set is really there now. But in the interesting thing is that, you know, for me as a, as a person who's done a lot of regulation, you know, I know that the only time I should regulate is when there's a failure in the market. Mm -hmm. And if the way I regulate gets the market to work, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. which is to internalize the costs and to act on them, it's a, it's a win. Yeah. And that's what happened with clean energy here. Yeah. You know, it was driven in two ways, because I'm going to give Ernie Moniz and, and President Obama a lot of credit mm -hmm. for spending a significant amount of money on clean energy mm -hmm. from the recovery funds and others, because it really provided an opportunity when signals were sent by regulation that clean energy has to be a path forward. Mm -hmm. It gave us a launching pad for that. Mm -hmm. And right now, clean energy is winning everywhere, which is why you see the, the world shifting in this way so dramatically and you see opportunities for significant job growth. That's what you look for in every venue, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is the opportunity to shift markets and have markets internalize this. And then everybody wins. Consumers win, businesses win, and, and you know, me and my family wins. Yeah, and, it's, yeah. and that's the way it has to work. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned a number of times in yeah. your address the, the issues of inequity and protecting the vulnerable. Yeah. And I'm actually quite proud that we there is much more of a discussion about that now than there has been in, in, in previous years. And I think particularly as we're going into another election cycle, this concept of dealing with inequity in this country yeah. is, a, is becoming yeah. a big part of that conversation. And I think that's appropriate. But how do you view sort of addressing the issues you've always cared about mm -hmm. with a sort of more heightened equity and inequality lens? What has that meant for you? Yeah, I, I th it means a couple of things. One is health, when you focus on health, inequities become very apparent. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it just, pollution just doesn't impact everybody equally. Biologically it won't, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but also you, you can easily see where the areas are most polluted and who lives there. Mm -hmm. And you can provide really strong uh, information and data analysis that will show where where you sh where you could be getting immediate benefits and how those benefits far outweigh the costs mm -hmm. and that has always been a structure in governance that that we've had to work in and I think it works mm -hmm. you know it it choose, it you know it 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 makes you think a lot more about about how to be strategic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because to me when people can't get to work and when their kids can't breathe you are not in a position to be able to advance those communities economically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, I've always been a little bit, um, how shall I say it, uh, frustrated uh, that, that the environmental community hasn't grabbed onto this idea more because they tend to be very purist. 
and that purist hasn't allowed them to see the full range of motivations for people, the information that you need to give them that matter. So equity has always been a fundamental part of how we've thought about it. But, but also, you see it, it in this country and in other countries where youth are concerned, it is a significant driver. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is not a minor issue. Sure. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I hear about it every single day. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it gives an edge to the discussion that's deserved. Sure. You know, it, not, it shouldn't be just, well, maybe we can do it over here, or maybe we can do it over there. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. if you start building the ability of communities that have been left behind to have a voice, to have an ability to earn money, mm -hmm. to have an ability to be healthier. You will spread the wealth, you will grow, you will build an economy that is more just. And, and frankly, it, it has to be part of the equation, both in terms of how you assess the problem, but what your solutions are. Mm -hmm. And we learned that in California, because California, when they first started their cap and trade program, didn't really think about these issues. And it was understandable, none of us Many of us didn't. Mm -hmm. and, and they had to think about it. They had to think about what did that mean? What was, where, was that going to drive investment? Was it going to be fairly driven to areas that needed it the most? Or, and those issues became prominent in how we thought about it in the Obama administration and how we, how we actually designed regulations to incent investment in the communities that needed it the most. And that's, so I, I think it matters a lot. I think it's a big driver. And I think the young people will really start hammering those of us who have thought about it as a second tier issue mm -hmm. instead of the first thing to think about. Yeah. And I would no longer ever do that. Because yeah. uh, yeah. it's, it's proven to be a, a tremendous missed opportunity in disrespect yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, listen, we could stay here and talk about this all day, but I really want to thank you for uh, lending us your leadership and your energy for as we kick off this discussion today. Well, we thank are going so to much. win this battle, folks. There's no second place here. This That's is going to be great. Thank you Please so much. Please join me in thanking you. I appreciate it. Okay, and next I'd like to introduce Ian Campbell, who is a, a senior, senior fellow at uh, Rocky Mountain Institute to give us some more information on what this uh, global cooling prize is that we've been talking so much about. Cool remarks that uh, she shared with us. Um, I'm going to speak about the cooling dilemma, um, but I want to speak about it from the lens of solutions and how do you solve the cooling dilemma, not from the lens of the analysis and the framing of the problem. To understand how to solve it, you have to understand the problem. And so I'm going to start with where we are. And when you look at where we are, um, and you look at where cooling has largely been adopted today, and this is an interesting chart to look at. When you look at the bars, what it represents is the normalized latent demand for cooling. So it's cooling degree days and population. So you can think about that as what is the demand for cooling coming from these different countries and regions around the world. The line bar looks at where cooling or that demand has been satiated today. And what you see is that where the demand has largely been satiated is within uh, countries and nation states where um, actual demand for cooling is relatively modest when you start to look at the countries on the right-hand side of that chart. So when we think about looking in the rear view mirror at how big is the problem of cooling, 
it's probably not something that's been top of the agenda for us. When you look into the future and say, where is cooling going? It really does need to be on everyone's agenda. But this is just in relation to what you could calculate for demand today. But we've actually got major accelerators at play here. One is the continued population growth. Another is urbanization. I think we know that when you're designing within dense uh, urban environments, passive solutions are much more challenging to deploy. And so there's much more demand or natural demand for mechanical cooling. Um, income growth, which gives the capacity to meet the uh, unsatiated demand, then all of this happening within the context of a planet that's getting warmer. Um, and as we start to think about cooling, and you know, I think in many developed countries around the world, we think about cooling as being somewhat of a luxury item. Well, there's about 2.8 billion people that live in the tropics today. And as Gina McCarthy said, about 50% of the world's population will be there by the time we get to 2050. And we've got significant heat stressed environments there where it's actually cooling is not viewed so much as a luxury, but actually as something that's a need for human health, human well-being, productivity, and even at the extreme prosperity. And there's a, a very telling remark, which was actually made back in 2009 by Prime Minister Lee from Singapore. Air conditioning was the most important invention for us, perhaps one of the signal inventions of history. It changed the nature of civilization by making development possible within the tropics. And cooling sits behind, I think we would agree, many of the sustainable development goals that we have in place. So what does this uh, demand for cooling as it starts to get met, what does that actually look like? Well, this is just looking at uh, room air conditioners or residential air conditioning, which is the most ubiquitous. Um, and entry level cooling, it's what people would first look to to get comfort within their home environment. Today there's about 1.2 billion um, room air conditioners deployed around the world. Uh, 460 million of those are in China, and that happened over the last 20 years, I think, as the adoption started to scale in China. Uh, you take that out to 2050, we're looking at growth of about four and a half to, to about four and a half billion um, room air conditioners, residential air conditioners, being deployed around the world. And I won't go out to 2100 because the math gets a little shaky as you go that far. But 2050, I think we can say yes, probably about four and a half billion. That's not meeting the demand or the need for cooling that you would identify within the tropics, but that's what we predict is where uh, installed base is going to go. Why does that matter? Well, um, air conditioning cooling uses significant amount of electricity. Um, this chart would indicate that by 2050 for all end uses of cooling, that about 6,000 terawatt hours, put that in perspective, about 22,000 terawatt hours is the global consumption of electricity today for all end uses. So 6,000 just for cooling, two-thirds of that uh, focused on residential, which is why as we get in to talk about the prize, you'll see that we're very focused on residential. It's the largest segment. It's the fastest growing segment. It's the entry-level uh, solution that people look to as they uh, look to acquire. Uh, comfort cooling. It's also the one that's subject to the greatest market failures. So we'll go into, uh, we'll jump into that. 
Um, but it's not just the electricity that is used by air conditioning, it's how it's used. And air conditioning or cooling as a load is uh, somewhat challenging to our electrical or energy systems because of the summer peaks. And the summer peak in cities that have a very high level of penetration of cooling, you're looking at somewhere between 40 to 60% of the load being for uh, running cooling. And so what that means is there's actually a very tight correlation between the amount of cooling capacity in place and the amount of grid capacity necessary to serve that load, which makes it a very expensive load to be served by the grid um, because of that peakiness. It also becomes a significant burden to consumers because although the entry-level cooling solutions today can come at a fairly modest cost, the life cycle of operating that equipment from an electricity consumption perspective uh, can be a significant portion of uh, median incomes within many developing countries. So if you take that and then say, okay, so what's the emissions impact of this? Well, there's two emissions impacts from cooling. One is the actual indirect emissions associated with the electricity consumption. The other is the direct emissions associated with the refrigerants or the working fluids that the units use um, that are going to have some leakage through uh, lifetime operation, through servicing, and through end of life. You take those together, and if you just look at the room or residential air conditioning segment combined, you're looking at about two gigatons of emissions associated with that end use just for room residential air conditioning globally. Business as usual pathway, which assumes that we have better buildings, we have continued improvement in minimum energy performance standards, um, we have better refrigerant management, we'd be up at about five and a half gigatons by 2050 based upon that look at the installed base. And that five and a half gigatons of emissions per year starts to build up and be a very significant part of the carbon budget that we're trying to work within. Um, so what's being done? Well, Gina McCarthy spoke about the uh, wonderful work with the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. 2016, 197 nations came together and actually agreed that this was a serious enough problem that it demanded a solution what do we see in this segment as being the impact of the Kigali Amendment through uh, its implementation? Well, that five and a half gigatons of emissions should go down to about three and a half gigatons. That's what Kigali does in relation to the freeze and the phase out of HFC refrigerants. And we're also building better buildings and uh, building codes being adopted and uh, I think increasingly enforced. And we're being smarter about how we operate our buildings, but we can't get away from the fact that the equipment serving the loads, the cooling loads within the buildings is a critical component and a critical opportunity for really impacting the emissions intensity of the cooling sector. So um, if we start to then think about the air conditioning industry and some of the drivers for the air conditioning industry. One of the things we looked at in the research is where are we in relation to maximum theoretical uh, efficiency of different technologies? And this is theoretical, maximum theoretical, but it's an indicator. 
And you can see something like LED lighting, that what you can commercially buy, about 67% theoretical maximum. Solar PV, about 28%. Uh, it's obviously much more in some of the labs. Uh, room air conditioners, and this is specific to room air conditioners, it's about 14% of the maximum theoretical efficiency. And then that takes you to, well, why is that? It was a, it's a great industry. It's actually one I worked in for 30 years. Um, but the industry is subject, or the, there's a uh, subject to a massive market failure. And that's if you look at what are the buying signals that industry is being shown, is that lowest first cost, power of brand, and aesthetics in this segment matter more than any other drivers, obviously including life cycle cost. So if you've got those market signals going to an industry, how does industry respond? Well, you get to lowest cost and brand leverage by being large. So we have a very significantly consolidated industry. 70% of global room air conditioning manufacturers in China, and two of that, uh, sorry, half of that is with just two corporations. And so you've seen that how the market signals have shaped industry, and within that, uh, within that dynamic, mass market innovation has somehow failed because there isn't a reward for having a technology that's twice as efficient because the signals from the market aren't that we want to buy it and the policy makers don't have sufficient courage to move the minimum energy performance standards to that, to that timeline. So what do we do with that dynamic? That was why we chose to, uh, to launch the cooling prize. Uh, which was to shine a spotlight on this space and understand what's possible, uh, both to create some excitement, but also to inform, and to inform policymakers, to inform uh, industry as to what's there and how those signals could change. So um, the prize, which was launched in November uh, last year globally, and we've been doing a series of rolling launches since then, Primary criteria is five times less climate impact than the benchmark, which was the number one selling unit in India last year, in 2018. So that was the benchmark, five times less climate impact, weighted between refrigerant and electricity. What that means is you have a refrigerant that has zero GWP or global warming potential. On the electricity side, you've also got to use uh, one-fourth of the electricity of the baseline unit to meet the five times climate impact. How did we come up with five times? Well, it was a good round number. Uh, it was also the number we identified as what was needed to neutralize the growth within the segment that's projected. And we felt that it was in the realms of something that's possible. So since we launched, um, we so far have six, over 1,600. We're approaching 1,700 registered applicants that I guess think it's possible also. Um, over 170 of those have uh, submitted intent to apply that actually describes the technologies that, they, uh, uh, that they're going to be submitting. And we're in the open application period until we get to uh, end of August this year. Um, We've been able to catalyze a lot of outreach to ensure participation, very broad participation from across the incumbent industry, but also uh, other adjacent sectors. 
And uh, obviously a big thanks to um, many of our outreach partners and uh, associates within the work that we're doing. I'm incredibly grateful for, uh, for their support. And then we have prize money, but perhaps more important for participants is one of the primary supporters of the prize is actually the government of India uh, with support from the Department of Science and Technology and Environment, Forestry and Climate Change and the Ministry of Power that understands what scaling of demand is going to mean in relation to uh, their grid uh, and the amount of infrastructure that has to be put in place. That's important because that is going to be the biggest marketplace for these products and technologies over the next 30 years. Um, so what does it mean if we uh, identify a five times lower climate impact solution and that is able to be scaled? Well, that number that today is two gigatons per annum of emissions, which goes to five and a half gigatons in 2050, which Kigali Amendment brings down to three and a half, actually goes down to below one gigaton of emissions. You meet the need and the demand for cooling at an environmental cost that is now manageable in relation to being able to put sufficient renewable energy generation to satisfy that end-use demand. So it doesn't incrementally improve the problem, it solves the problem. Solves it specific to this segment, which is what the prize has been designed to do. Um, what does that mean cumulatively? Cumulatively, it's about 75 uh, gigatons of emissions avoided through 2050. You extrapolate that to 2100 and you put it into the climate models, you're looking at somewhere between 0.3 and 0.5 degree of warming just associated with being able to transition to a five times lower climate impact technology for cooling. It also happens to avoid about 2000 gigawatts of installed generation capacity and a redundant cost that uh, is avoided of about $1.4 trillion, uh, which can be, I'm sure, channeled to other good uses. So um, thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, we're going to transition now to a panel that's actually going to have a discussion. This was a little bit of a flyby, but I hope uh, that there was enough there that you were able to get a, a good understanding of the challenge and how we're looking to address the challenge and obviously uh, have an opportunity now to hear from the panelists. So um, I think uh, Karti K. Singh, if he's here, is going to be, yes, if uh, he can come up and he'll, he'll introduce the panelists and the panel will actually be discussing um, both the cooling dilemma, but also uh, the, some of the technical pathways and the cooling prize itself. So thank you. Um, come on up. So I'm Kartha K. Singh. I'm the Deputy Director and Senior Fellow of the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies and also Senior Fellow of the Energy and National Security Program here at CSIS. And it's my pleasure to host this panel. Uh, we've got an all-star cast here to dive a little bit deeper into um, what this prize is and what it means um, in terms of the right group of stakeholders that need to be mobilized and energized uh, in order to find the innovations to address the challenges that we're talking about. So let me try and harness some of the energy that we had uh, uh, at the start, not to say that the energy diminished at all, uh, but uh, that was a quite a, quite a powerful uh, set of remarks uh, by the former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and, 
you know, I want to reiterate that for many parts of the planet, um, climate change is here. And the, there's a, a strong understanding um, that the need for cooling comforts is now a matter of survival. People need access to cooling technologies to survive what's coming or what is here in many parts of the world. Um, and affordability is a key, uh, key component as cooling technology uh, is adopted um, and as we saw in the presentation uh, that just ended, um, that cooling costs as a percent of, of median household income are uh, you know, tremendous for certain parts of the planet. Um, Pakistan, 15%. Uh, in India, 11%. And, and in Indonesia, 7%. Um, so non-OECD countries are, are expected uh, to dominate um, you know, the AC demand uh, through 2050, um, particularly South and Southeast Asia. Now one country stands out uh, above all else uh, when not only having an impact in the sector, uh, but being impacted uh, by a changing climate, and that is India. So let me run a little bit through the numbers. Um, so by 2050, India will account for 20% of the global growth of room air conditioners. That's significant. Um, one billion of the 4.5 billion units um, you know, projected across the planet will come from this one country alone. Um, it will therefore become the largest energy user for space cooling. Um, and it will have um, an increase of its emissions from this resultant cooling need uh, rise by 15 fold. Now let me take a moment to um, also address what it means to have India as a partner country as part of this uh, challenge. Um, India was uh, at the forefront of defining in the global climate negotiations uh, key term, common but differentiated responsibilities uh, in who should act to address the climate challenge. And I think India has seen tremendous growth uh, in its economy um, and knows that it needs to create millions of jobs for a large young population and understands that to power these jobs, they will need to have a healthy energy sector um, and that they will need to have um, the kinds of technologies to ensure that people are productive. And as the reports and the research have really laid out, there's tremendous economic cost to the Indian economy from not having access to cooling technologies. At the same time, the very ecological stability of this country of 1.3 billion is impacted uh, by a changing climate. So having them as partners for this particular challenge is quite, um, quite a change uh, in terms of recognizing uh, its role uh, in addressing the crisis and in being a laboratory for experimentation. Um, and we'll have you know, an opportunity to discuss more about not only just India, but other countries um, and, and the potential for, for technological solutions therein. Um, but let me just frame a little bit more of what I'm hoping we can tease out from our panelists here. So you know, air conditioning demand will really place massive burdens also on the electric grids uh, across the world. Uh, and again, uh, to, to cite a number from India, I mean, I think the, the increase uh, in, uh, in energy infrastructure build out uh, will be to the tune of 400 gigawatts, which is just phenomenal. It's, it's more than double their current installed um, power generation capacity. Um, so utilities will have to really grapple with some of these issues. Um, and they may prove to be the valuable partners that we need to actually test, to serve as test beds for deploying some of these innovations. We're still plagued with relatively low energy efficiency or AC efficiency. Um, 
uh, standards, uh, and particularly the dominant technologies of vapor, vapor compression cycles and their impacts uh, as further adding to, you know, that they're having uh, a high global warming potential. Um, so to, to tease out some of what are the um, you know, potential technological solutions, what it means to have a prize like this to spur the innovation, I am joined uh, on stage um, by Paul Bungie, who is co-founder of Conservation X Labs, and he's also known uh, in his previous role as chief scientist and, and principal at the X Prize Foundation. We're also joined um, by uh, Gabrielle Dreyfus, uh, who is the senior scientist at the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development uh, and head of policy standards and programs for the Kigali Cooling Efficiency Program. Um, we also have with us um, Bill Sisson, who is executive director of the World Business Council on Sustainable Development in North America. Um, and then finally, we have David uh, Nemzo, who is the Building uh, and Technologies Office Director uh, of the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy at the Department of Energy. Um, and I'm pleased to say that I think I have uh, a nearly one degree uh, separation with nearly everybody on the panel. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> or mutual friends. Um, so um, I'm going to hand it over to Paul to first talk about um, you know, how the prize can help jumpstart things. Um, so uh, you have about five-ish minutes, and then uh, we'll hand it over to the other panelists, and then we'll do a moderated uh, a discussion. Uh, perfect. Thank, thank you, Kurt. Uh, this, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to do this. You, you heard um, Alex speak earlier about the motivations the Conservation X Labs, trying to protect species from going extinct, has in dealing with cooling. Um, the other thing that, that he alluded to, and you, you started to hear a lot more about, is why we might use a prize competition like this to get that transformation. And, and uh, this is obviously something that we love a, a, a lot, primarily because, and you heard Ian speak eloquently to this, it drives solutions, uh, and like Administrator McCarthy said, not just complaining. And that's a, that's a really, really key differentiator. But I think there's some, there's some nuance under that driving solution that, that we should unpack. The first is that, is that it's not necessarily about the one solution that's going to transform things. You already heard uh, 178 uh, uh, applicants all, or, or intense, intentions to, to apply. Think about that for a moment. 178 different, today, ideas on how to solve this tough problem, how to get to 5x more uh, or less climate impact from, from air conditioning. That's a lot better than just one great idea that somebody has in the back of a garage. And in fact, there are probably a lot of great ideas people have in the back of the garage. This is something that, that prizes are really candidly known for, right? It's, it's capitalizing on the power of the crowd, essentially, that there is genius in the crowd, and that you don't necessarily know where that genius lies uh, or who has that genius. Um, one of my favorite examples, when, when Alex was at uh, USAID and running the, the um, Saving Lives at Birth Grand Challenge, it's one of the winners of, of, of ways of, of uh, innovating to prevent obstructed labor and maternal and infant mortality was invented by an Argentinian car mechanic, which I think is phenomenal. Uh, it goes to show that uh, ideas can come from anywhere. And if you incentivize this, this concept of behavior change, if you incentivize people to offer their ideas up and create a real solution, you can get not only orthogonal um, uh, perspectives and, and new innovations that seem to come out of left field, but you get an entirely new community of innovators that are brought into this. Speak, speaking to equity, for example, and, and the opportunity there is not only to, to not suffer from things like climate change, but to be a part of the solution. A prize offers that up, because rather than 
than, than counting on the experts who might know all of the, the details of the problem. They're very good at, at articulating the statistics about the problem. You're offering up a reward for whoever has the solution. And mind you, as Ian described, they have to prove that they have the solution. So it's not about your expertise or your bona fides. It's about proving that you can accomplish something really, really remarkable. Um, there's three sort of subtle impacts, I think, though, related to that that I want people to remember. And I'm, I'm actually going to ask you all for, 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 to do something at the end of this as well. Uh, the first is that, is that um, those, those uh, changes, the, the, the fact that we're going to solve something really hard can completely change the perspective around an issue. It can change the way people visibly think about uh, uh, whether or not something is solvable. It also can make something like cooling relevant to, to individuals, right? It, I don't think room AC is the first thing we talk about with, uh, with our family over, over dinner necessarily or at a happy hour or something like that. But a prize is kind of cool, right? Who's gonna, you know, the, the horse race is kind of interesting. But it also means that we can talk about folks like the Argentinian car mechanic and make, it, make it, 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 its perception different. We can solve hard problems. And in fact, that money that's being put up there is an indicator that people believe this is a solvable problem. Even more than that, organizations like, or, you know, uh, partners like the Indian government saying that we can actually roll this out as a solution demonstrates that, it, that, the, that there's a real solution out there. The next thing that you see is, is changing a, 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 of a community. Think about those 1,700, almost 1,800 applicants, in, in, you know, people that are signing up. That's, that's, that's a critical mass. That's a lot of folks that are now starting to work together on a topic, on an issue that hadn't been seen before. Think about all of you and all the partners that, that, that have been shown up there. That's showing that there is momentum and initiative moving behind something, something that can really, really start to change things. In fact, when we, when we um, Conservation X Labs, a number of years ago, we ran something called the Blue Economy Challenge with the Australian government to rethink aquaculture. How do you, how do you create feed and, and systems of aquaculture so that it's not damaging the natural environment, for example? And what we saw, a ton of great things came out of it, but what we saw was that there were innovators in every part of the world that just didn't necessarily know they were a part of this massive movement. And then there were institutions in every part of the world that didn't realize there were so many innovators out there. And just the act of going through that competition alone created a sea change, pun intended, thank you, Gina, for the, the suggestion, in, in how it was that that community saw each other and, 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 the, and the pace with which change could actually be rolled out. And then the last, the third thing so we see that, that, that really the, the prizes like this can accomplish is to fundamentally transform an industry. Sometimes they even create brand new markets. And Ian spoke to this. This is the opportunity that's really out there. It's great that there's $3 million in prizes available. It's even better that there are going to be billions of air conditioning units out there that, are that, that, that is a market there for the pickings of those who want to own that breakthrough market. And when you can get partners in industry and in government and the innovators themselves in finance and investment all working to shape that new market, recognizing that the technology will be there, otherwise the prize doesn't get won, right? we pay for success, recognizing that the demand will be there, and recognizing that there is a global movement, a community of, of partners in, in every sector of society that is shaping that, that becomes a real transformative uh, element. Just so, so you know I'm not making this up, my favorite example of transformative power of prizes in this, this create a, a market sort of notion was Charles Lindbergh who flew in order to win $25,000 prize, flew across the Atlantic in order to win this. But it was, wasn't the technological innovation that was so impressive. What it did was change the hearts and minds of everybody from investors to customers. Within a year and a half of him flying, commercial air traffic went up 30-fold in the United States, 30 times more people buying tickets on airplanes 
as a result of that flight. That's a transformation. In other words, we have the ability to fly around the world to thank a prize because it changes the entire perception of, of, of whole industries. And that's my ask for everybody here. You may not think you have, a, I don't have any idea how to solve this problem technologically. I'm a, I'm a biologist, but, um, but I think it's cool. Um, but I do have the ability to help identify those, those, those needles in the haystack that are out there, those, those, those Argentinian car mechanics. I do have the ability to take this to the institutions I worked with and say there is a possibility for change. I do have the ability to, to create a narrative around how markets will change in the future and identify either regulatory shifts, investment shifts, and finance shifts, etc. So I guarantee every single one of you has that role to play in this prize. And I hope that you, we will see you taking something after, after here today to make the impact even, even greater associated with what we're doing. Thank you, Paul. Um, that was interesting. I hadn't really thought about um, the community building aspect of this and the people that are really going to come out of the woodwork and see that they're part of a broader movement. Um, and perhaps, whether or not they get the prize, uh, be able to share lessons learned in trying right. to find the solution right. and really ratchet up um, you know, innovations or efficiencies further, even if they don't end up, um, like I said, winning the prize. Exactly. Um, uh, now, yes, and thank you, um, thank you so much, Paul. So I'm going to turn it over now to, to Gabrielle and Bill um, to learn a little bit about um, how some of the technologies are developing. Um, and so I'm hoping that you can, you can speak ahead, to that. Go so Gabrielle, do you want to go first? Sure. So first of all, thank you, Paul. I think that gave me chills. I can't tell if that was your talk or the air conditioning that just came on. Um, <laughs> Oh, it's efficient to see. It's a lead building. Uh, but I do actually have another participatory question out of curiosity just to bring this home in the way that, that uh, Gina mentioned. How many people here live or work in a place that has air conditioning? Just raise your hands. So I'm going to say most of the room. For the people on the web, I'm sorry I can't see you. Um, if you lived and worked in D.C., you can understand that that's going to probably be the majority of the people in the, world, in the room here. And I raise that question because a lot of people have thought about cooling as a luxury item. But a study that just came out earlier this year uh, by Mastrucci et al. from EASA calculated that today, under current climate conditions, 1.8 to 4 billion people are at risk of heat stress due to lack of access mm -hmm. to cooling. So that market is there. People want to buy air conditioners. In fact, in the time that I take to give these remarks, approximately 500 air conditioners will have been sold. Uh, they, it's about three a second to get to those billions that Ian was pointing out. So yeah, the market is there, there's huge demand, and it's because people actually want to be able to sleep at night, so when they get up in the morning and go work at the factory, they're able to do so in a way that is productive, but they're able to make money, keep their families healthy and safe. But um, I just want to take, take another step back and um, mention that even with that explosive growth that Ian mentioned, there still will be a large number of households that are underserved that won't have access to electricity. One of the things that uh, I find very fascinating, and a lot of the modeling that scientists do, this is some, going back to something Gina said, is a lot of assumptions that go into future demand growth assumes a certain rate of GDP, especially in poor countries, where by 2100, the a lot of people still wouldn't be able to afford an air conditioner. So there's a big equity question here, and this is why the prize is so important, to find a solution that's also affordable. Um, we talked about, uh, on the technology front, uh, the, the energy demand that's going to be added um, the International Energy Agency calls cooling a blind spot, and that's because air conditioners, as you saw, tend to run at the same time. They tend to have a huge impact on peak load, and with that, I think it's uh, 20,000 gigawatts of cooling is going to be connected by 2050. Uh, power that, we will find a way, but it's going to make it a lot harder unless we make these things more efficient. 
And that's where innovation and energy efficiency come in. Uh, essentially, none of the air conditioners that are going to be running in 2050 have been built yet, let alone designed. And the prize is an excellent opportunity to get people thinking about creative designs. There's also the fact that we have a really effective global uh, treaty that is forcing this industry to redesign every piece of equipment. So, Gina McCarty mentioned, and um, the Kigali uh, cooling and efficiency, or sorry, the Kigali Amendment, which was agreed in 2016 and went into effect January 1st of 2019. Um, so that's part of the Montreal Protocol to, uh, on substances that deplete the ozone layer. And under this treaty uh, that was actually um, agreed under the Reagan administration in 1987, uh, there have already been three transitions where industries and governments have come together to change the way that our refrigeration equipment works. And as part of those innovations, they've actually made them more efficient in addition to saving the ozone layer. And so we are now in the fourth transition and we're, we're moving away from super polluting fluorinated gases. And one of the first, and for the first time, the Kigali Amendment recognizes the opportunity to also improve the energy efficiency of this equipment at the same time. So uh, with that said, we've got a cooling prize to try to change the way people think about it. We've got an international driver as a treaty that is going to force redesign of this equipment. And we've got billions of people who need it. So we've got, uh, we've got I think, the ingredients for making some massive fast change that we need for the planet. Perfect. Thanks, Gabby. We're all set. Um, <laughs> I have uh, just taken in some wonderful comments from my two colleagues on the panel, only to realize I'm, I might be the only one on the panel that actually has spent 30 years in the private sector, much like Ian. I came from the industry. Uh, a lot of what I worked on and what I spent my time doing was on, uh, in, in, in fact, involved in the research and development of technology for uh, what were our products and led teams and initiatives around uh, these challenging issues. So having spent 30 years in that capacity and probably the last 15 trying to figure out how this company was becoming more and more involved and embedded in the climate change agenda and the sustainability issues the world's facing, I decided to retire. And in that period of retirement, I started thinking about where can I spend my time to actually get at some of these issues. And I was at the Global uh, Climate Summit last September when I met Ian and heard about the, the prize and I committed myself to getting to be Ian's best friend and getting myself in, involved in this initiative. So fast forward a few months later, where I now have the tremendous opportunity of representing the private sector and more involving the private sector in these types of initiatives as the executive director of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And this is a, an organization that, that's committed and committed to its members to being involved in these issues and being actively involved in driving solutions. So not only do I have the capacity to work with Ian and the, and the team on the technical review committee for the prize, I can also try to mobilize some of those very members I now work with to help us get some of these solutions across the finish line. So let me talk a little bit about, about the technological aspects of this since that's where I involved most of my time. Uh, I mentioned uh, for this large global air conditioning company that I ran the R&D group for, for the, the, the long-term R&D uh, activities of this group uh, for many years, 
we got involved in all of these things. We got involved in how to manage refrigerant uh, changes, how to involve uh, ourselves in, in what might be referred to as disruptive technologies, how to become more acquainted with innovators in this space that were being, um, uh, that were the, more or less the idea generators for us to think, uh, think about their ideas and how they would impact us. But those problems were focused on what I would call the large margin, large air conditioning problems the world faced. The chilled water system that's probably keeping us cool today here in Washington, D.C. when we really don't need it. Um, the other technologies that are involved with how to make large systems and semi-large systems work. But when it came to room air conditioners, Ian will tell you it was a dirty little secret. We didn't put much effort into those technologies that, that we needed for those small-scale solutions. There wasn't much margin. There wasn't much demand in those days. And the distribution channels were complex and complicated. They weren't our traditional channels. So we had to just basically put those aside and let others take those on. Well, fast forward to the global cooling prize. And I think it's really uh, a, a strong testimony to the need that needs to exist here. Big business will be involved in this when it comes time to push, push the technologies through to commercialization, but it's going to take a different mindset and a different uh, capacity to think about the challenges Kigali is, is imposing on the design of these systems, whether or not there are breakthrough technologies and new solid state type approaches for air conditioning, how to break through some of those traditional research barriers that I know I impo imposed on the very innovators in my own organization to be involved in a different way of thinking about how to solve these problems. And, and the problem really boils down to this in, in terms of the market complexity that we address here. It's, it, it, I think some refer to it as a market failure. Um, for us, it was basically, this is a market that really is driven on first cost. About a market that buys room air conditioners when they walk into their Walmarts or their equivalent Walmarts in India and say, what's the cheapest product I can find that fits my needs for keeping me cool and comfortable, particularly in the hot climates that we're talking about. And so it's a market failure in the sense that the signals that are driving the the decisions are not those same decisions that drive the big systems that we put our attention span on. So this is what's got to change. It's got to, it's got to listen to a market in a different way. It's got to listen to the numbers that you were presenting about how much is it going to cost to operate this system. And when we talk about a five times change, that's significant when it comes to those operating costs. So we have to put first cost in play, it's still going to be important, but we also have to recognize that there's a market, there's an operating cost benefit that goes along with it. So thank you, Ian, for, for helping us to be uh, motivated to see this change through the prize and the RMI community and the, in the, in the global prize community. I think it's a wonderful uh, path to helping uh, change the dynamic in the industry. And uh, I think with the signals we've now had as, a, as an organization receiving over 1,600 inquiries, and more than 10% of those inquiries turning into a commitment to participate across 36, I think, countries of teams that are involved. This is truly a global cooling prize that's going to produce a result. I'm, I'm convinced of that. So thanks. Yep. Thanks, Bill. Uh, you know, taking both what Gabby and Bill just said, you know, both about the price sensitivity component of this, um, you know, first cost being such a big component, the billions that need 
access to this cooling technology. Um, you know, one of the things that's happened in a, in, a, in a country like India recently, which has been quite a, quite a feat, is that they have reached 100% household electrification. Um, and I just got back from a study tour across five Indian states um, looking at what's now going to be the state of play beyond connections. And there is a lot of talk about demand stimulation to try to uh, increase uh, the consumption of electricity in these newly electrified regions. Um, many of uh, these locations are facing tremendous you know, heat stress. Um, so I think a lot of these consumers are going to be making some of those decisions uh, you know, in terms of what is the least cost option. Right. Um, and so this prize couldn't have come at a better time, I think, uh, to try to uh, you know, come up with a solution that is not only least cost, but uh, also super efficient. Um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to David, uh, our colleague here from the Department of Energy. Um, who's going to speak a little bit about uh, what's working and the policy mechanisms, mechanisms that can be utilized. Um, over to you. Great. Thanks very much, and uh, thanks for having the Department of Energy. Uh, first, I want to say I didn't get the memo that said no PowerPoints. <laughs> I probably got the memo and missed it. So I'm going to, I have too many slides. I'm just going to, I would just want to make a few points. I'm going to use slides to do, but first I want to associate myself uh, with everything we've heard, with one exception, that's you, Paul, people do discuss cooling over dinner. It's just a fight over the temperature. I'm not in the right. I'm not invite me to dinner, That's please. all I want to say. It's not in a good way. No, it's too cold. My too parents cold. can be your poster child, uh, children of that. So, yeah, it's too cold, it's too something. Uh, but I also want to make a comment about prizes, and you've heard some very um, important thoughts about that. And, Ian, we were busy getting uh, wired up when you spoke, so... Uh, hopefully, uh, we're in fierce agreement here. So uh, I'll give an example. The office I'm at, the Building Technologies Office at DOE, we held a prize a few years ago called the L Prize for, a, for to basically say come up with a regular, what you would call a screw-in light bulb, an Edison screw-in A-type light bulb. They didn't exist then for consumers. We had solid-state lighting. I'm sorry, that were solid-state. We had solid-state lighting, but not in that form. And we offered a, a, a rich prize, and Philips North America won it. They built a bulb, just like you would see now. It would have retailed for $50. And yet, they never manufactured them, besides the 1,000 they gave us, some of which are still running in the metrology shop in uh, Richland, Washington. They never sold them, but it went, they went to go on to sell other products based on that work, based on the prize, and then other companies competed. And now, of course, you can go to an Ace Hardware around here, and buy a four for $7 in a blister pack. So that's, I think, one example of a, a successful prize, and we're pleased that we can be part of that. But also, again, um, uh, you, you don't necessarily get the, the product that the prize pays for if you get the, but you may well get the innovation. And I think, I think you, you all should pop the champagne if that's the case here, yeah. and somebody wins, and it transforms the market regardless of the exact uh, prize. So let me say a few things. and, and I not only missed the um, email about PowerPoints, but I'm going to talk about something a little different. I want to talk about the air conditioning ecosystem, and that's this. Not to take away anything from the uh, essential need, and we're working on it in my office. I want to give a shout out to my <coughs> colleague, Tony Busa, who's our lead on HVAC and refrigeration issues, who's here today. Uh, so we not only work on the efficiency of air conditioning at the Department of Energy, but the efficiency of the whole system, meaning the HVAC system that gets the cool air to somebody and then the building envelope that keeps the cool air in and not out. And I know 
Uh, I know none of you smart people would disagree with that, but I want to talk about that at the same time we talk about air conditioning per se. And we're very US-centric, so forgive me uh, if they're in a global setting. US buildings, there's 124 million of them consuming 40% of our energy needs, more than transportation or in industry, producing 39% of our CO2 emissions, three quarters of our electricity, $400, $400 billion annual bill. Cooling's in the US a big absolute amount, but a uh, modest share of that. So there's two things we need to do that I already highlighted. We need to, and here's two examples, air conditioners and solid state lighting. We want to invent, help, help bring we collectively, DOE and others, to uh, use energy more efficiently and more sustainably. We want to invent more efficient things, machines, technologies. Here's two examples. But then uh, we need to be smarter about how we use it. And if you look at this, um, thermal imaging of a building, you can see that uh, even though when the winner of the global, global cooling price someday puts a room AC in this, <laughs> it'll be for naught. And so this is some of the work we're also doing at the Department of uh, Energy, and I want to talk about that for a moment. We have to do that in this context of 124 million buildings, residential and commercial, uh, that are made differently, that are used for different purposes. Uh, the U.S. alone is the size of a subcontinent with different climates. And of course, um, some one-third of uh, buildings in the U.S. and even more on the commercial side are own, or, sorry, are occupied by somebody who doesn't own it, mm -hmm. and leads to uh, 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 all the disincentives that we know there. Yeah. This is a. I hope you can read it. This is a simple graph, some analysis that the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab did uh, for us, in which here's. It's a simple point. These are th this. Uh, the y-axis here is how much one saves. That's uh, how much value to society one creates by saving one megawatt hour from different technologies. One megawatt hour, that's held constant. So why does residential, uh, in this case central air conditioning, because that's what uh, they analyze, why does it produce two and a half times the value of a, a water heater? Because air conditioning defines the peak power demand in uh, most of the US, most of the world. And so when you save air, when you, sorry, put it this way, to power air conditioners, you have to build the grid to that hottest, sweatiest August day. And so it's not only the power you're paying for, but that grid infrastructure. So when we can save air conditioning power, we can avoid that peak power. And that's Massachusetts. And if you did it for Maryland or DC, it might be even more extreme. I wanna get back to the building envelope. This is a, a new initiative of ours, uh, very new, um, at the building's office called the Advanced Building Construction uh, uh, Initiative, ABC. And this is a, a picture, and we want to look at how does one um, advance building structures, including HVAC, um, by being less disruptive. So just a quick example, that building on the right, this is in Holland, used to look, that's a, that's a single, uh, that's a, a, a uh, two homes, uh, obviously with attached, two attached homes. It adds an exterior envelope with solar, with new HVAC, with new windows, uh, and nobody had to uh, move out. It took about three days, I believe, to do that. So these are some of the techniques we want to look at. I also want to talk, getting back to the grid for a minute, we want, um, we want air conditioning to be part of a grid, uh, a flexible grid system, because it is so much of our power demand uh, in the United States. And this is a, a, a complex graphic to send an important point, and that is with advanced sensors and controls, and if you look at the HVAC uh, uh, icon there, with advanced sensors and controls, we can provide that occupant 
uh, comfort and productivity that they need with less air conditioning. You probably all work in places with occupancy sensors. I hope you do, though. I don't know if uh, Gina McCarthy's still here. I was at EPA last week, and they don't, because uh, I have an <laughs> old federal building. But you have an occupancy sensor, so that means it's occupied or not occupied. Fine, that's a binary. If you had a population sensor, an advanced sensor for a room like this that knew the population, we would know if there was one person occupied, you could run the air conditioning very low and you'd get the air exchange and the comfort you need. But if you have a room full of people like this, wearing heavy wool suits and two neckties out of five, the, um, you, would be, you would run the air conditioning better. So this is a statement about advanced sensors and controls and about, um, uh, about partial loads of air conditioning, especially with utilities signals. So I won't go through our slides on, um, on our R&D program. If you just Google BTO and DOE, you get us first, and, uh, and I'll let you do that. Um, I guess what I want to talk about is, uh, uh, and we've heard some talk of this, there's two technology paths where we're investing in that heavily in our office, uh, Tony and his team, particularly at the Oak Ridge National Lab and elsewhere. One is path one is looking at advanced vapor compression and looking at obviously new refrigerants, ones that uh, will help lead us into the future, um, uh, such as our 32 and other uh, uh, HFCs as well as hydrocarbons and others, but also the non-traditional technologies, the non-vapor compression ones that have zero global warming potential on the direct side. I'm an energy guy, so I'm mostly gonna talk about the indirect side, and that's the energy efficiency. But we're working on that, and here's a summary, as well as, again, the whole system looking at heat exchangers. We had a major report on this a couple of years ago, 2016, and if you haven't read it, you probably wouldn't be here today, so I'm gonna assume <laughs> you've read it. Front to back. And Gabby helped us write it, so <laughs> there you go. Uh, and this is the growth you've heard about. Uh, my numbers are a little, I was just at Berkeley last week, Gabby, their numbers are a little more uh, discouraging about the rate of uh, air conditioning consumption, but in terms of the, uh, the rate, because it's going up, the three per second you said, if you, if you track it over time from your perspective, will average out to 10 per second over the next 30 years globally. And at 10 per second, so just to recrunch Gabby's numbers, since the session started, that's 100 and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that's 50,000 air conditioners that have been purchased. Uh, you know this, uh, the parts of the world we care about and the changes in refrigerants, and again, back to indirect. And so again, back before I, uh, and this is just a sales pitch for us working with industry uh, at the department, I guess what I want to follow, uh, conclude on again, it is really this, the, the direct and the indirect. And on the energy side, I'm, I'm not saying, well, one, we do have to look at the whole system. We collectively, not this important initiative, but, and that includes uh, making the power grid uh, less carbon intensive, which primarily means renewables, but it will mean uh, nuclear and other parts of the world. So it means everything all the way to the power grid, but at least I want to start. I get paid to think about buildings and, um, and I do, and so I at least want us to think about not only the air conditioning work that you all are doing that's so important, but how it fits into uh, the building system. So many air conditioners are installed improperly, charged improperly, designed, they're oversized or designed improperly. The vents may or may not behave, and so this is part of a broader ecosystem. It's, it's a key priority for us, 
And when I say us, I just want to say, I think uh, you will appreciate when I say this, not only for the uh, 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 career folks like Tony and myself and others, but also for our political leadership who uh, appreciate uh, no matter what you might read in the newspapers about what they might think about certain international um, uh, issues, our political leadership at DOE is very appreciates this issue of air conditioning and the challenge that it faces to the U.S. power grid, to U.S. Affordab affordability for U.S. homes and businesses, and in turn, global. Excellent. So uh, again, I want to thank you for the opportunity. There's where to find us. Thanks, David. I know that it wasn't fair to have uh, you talk about all the technical specs and, uh, and also cover um, the role that the U.S. federal government and agencies like the U.S. Department of Energy are playing in really expanding not only geog the geography of innovation and how you're spurring innovation, both within the United States, um, but also through the partnerships that you have with, with foreign countries. And both Gabby and I were, were at DOE uh, when uh, BTO was supporting a building energy efficiency uh, research and development project called the Partnership to Advance Clean Energy Research. Um, and, uh, and to make another plug for, I think, BTO, I think you just released another funding opportunity announcement uh, for building energy efficiency related uh, opportunity just a couple days ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it didn't cover necessarily air conditioners. But something you touched on in your presentation um, is going to prompt me to ask this question of both uh, Gabby and David. You know, there's a range of supportive technologies uh, that have an impact uh, on how we use uh, air conditioners uh, and um, you know, building design. Uh, you mentioned building envelopes. You mentioned um, sensors and control technologies that have an impact. Um, is part of the challenge um, that industry um, recognizes that there are a range of other efficiency improvements that can be made and therefore uh, there aren't, they aren't necessarily ratcheting up um, innovations that they could be making? Um, I don't know if that's uh, you know, assuming too much, um, but is that something that's at all talked about from in, in the industry partners that you deal with, David, or Gabby, um, in the conversations that you, you have with? Or how about the industry itself? Yeah. The industry itself, yeah. <laughs> So one of the findings actually was in a, a BTO uh, emerging technologies study that I thought was really interesting about the AC sector um, is that manufacturers recognize that consumers actually do pay attention to the efficiency of the cooling equipment because it is the kind of thing that you're going to see on your electric electricity bill in the summer. Um, and so they actually price and put their highest efficiency in their top of the line units. And it's only through government policies, such as Energy Star and minimum energy standards, that those innovations, so the R&D that industry is putting into this technology, makes it into the commodity units. Um, so uh, I'm just going to say that there is an interplay between what you're talking about in terms of what, uh, industry behavior and policy. And I think Gina mentioned market failure. I would say that this is a, it, everyone knows that when your, your AC is on, your electricity bill goes up. Um, I was actually, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the, the FIRE movement, the retire early, financially independent. They actually would <coughs> blog that your AC is actually an important part of that. You're, if you want to retire early, just just note to those paying attention. Um, but I don't know if you wanted to speak um, more to Curtis's question. Well, I'll just pile on and say, uh, agree with what Gabby said, and just and just take it up an, another level. You know, this challenge is, is big enough as we as we're discussing. We need all of the above: the research, uh, the demonstration, the deployment, uh, uh, best practices, and probably uh, standards in many cases. 
uh, and that's just within efficiencies, let alone refrigerants and other parts. But w one of the big challenges, and that's what I glossed it previously with that table about the, uh, the value of saved energy, is that the benefits are so distributed. And that's not, that's, I mean that in a negative way. They're dissipated, mm -hmm. I mean it pejoratively, in that when we save um, uh, uh, efficient, when we save energy through air conditioning efficiency, there's benefit to the tenant who may or may not be the building owner. There's benefit to the power grid. There's yeah. benefit to the rest of us in society. We heard Gina McCarthy talk about benefit to the least able to protect themselves who are impacted by the pollution, et cetera. But that's so disparate and it's very hard to roll it up. That's a classic government role. Yeah. That's what we do with appliance standards and, and uh, energy store and other measures. But that's, it's a, it's a challenge across energy efficiency and air conditions are smack dab in the, in the bullseye of, of okay. that problem. Nope. Now, let me just add, I, we spent millions of dollars on what I would call system level controls and electronics. And, and how do you integrate these into complex building systems and even into single family homes and, and the technology that's required and the ease of use that's required for that technology, which is very important for those of you that have tried to program your programmable thermostats at home. So how do you simplify that? How do you make it more easy and more aware to the consumers to be able to access and interact with these system levels that are non, not in the traditional vapor compression technology range? We spent a lot of time on that. But back to the point I was trying to make in my comments, we didn't put any time in that in room air conditioners. Okay, you're talking about a $100, $200, $300 unit you buy at Walmart. What are you going to do at that tech, not with that, that solution to fit this big sort of nice conversation we're having about system level controls. It's very different. And so the innovators that are out there thinking about this, they need to think about how do you incorporate some of these really advanced concepts that are not necessarily how you're gonna cool, but how you're gonna control the system to cool most optimally and most efficiently. That's what we want them thinking about. Yeah, well, Just one thing that yeah. occurs to me about each of your comments is we talked about how individuals respond to incentives, so does industry. And, and in, in cases like electricity or cooling, uh, we're treating these as commodities, essentially. And so industry is going to innovate around a first cost air conditioning unit as, as a thing that you buy, which is very different from the systems approach, which is starting to think of cooling or other electricity consuming um, products as services. In other words, there's higher value in, in, in air conditioning, partly because it, from a systems level perspective, it, it provides a different type of service even to the grid itself. In other words, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a negative service in the sense that it's, that it's incentivizing the build out of these, these grid things. But if we start to think about how we incentivize the, the construction of these systems to provide what people want, cooling, not a, an air conditioner. Nobody, I don't think most people, correct if I'm wrong, David, are they talking about the, well, aesthetics. The sexy air conditioner I just bought, or are they talking about the fact that it's finally cool in my house? Um, if, we, if we can think of ways where the industry, and I think this is actually a lot of the opportunity with the demand that's, that, that, that's, that's occurring right now, to rethink systems level approaches from a regulatory and an industry perspective, we, we might see additional innovations even in financial and business models that enable, enable some of these things that hopefully incentivize the R&D to happen. And we're seeing it in some of the uh, fields that are, again, akin to air conditioning. And I'll pick thermal energy storage. So thermal energy storage, uh, if done in association with, through chilled water or ice with air conditioning, allows air conditioners to run at night, stores those therms, and then runs it by day when power is cheaper and cleaner. So we are seeing some innovation there. But uh, that's by way of agreeing with your yeah. point that most of it's left in front of us. 
but you've got to give people a chance to make a living off it, right? Kevin, do you want to make it? Yeah, so on that systems level perspective, actually, so um, Bill and I are both on the technical review committee for the prize. One of the things we actually recognized in, in discussing some of the criteria is that if there is a solution that is able to harness the waste energy from their cooling solution and, for example, dump it into a water heater to heat water for another useful use, that will get a level of recognition. So it, there is some of that uh, recognition that we, you know, we're not dealing with this completely in isolation. And one more, one more point too, which is, which is I think the, the prize initially has that, that attractiveness to being focused on the techn technical solutions, mm -hmm. but I think we left the door open in the prize for innovation and business models that could capture this concept of new service offerings to, to harness a, a, a sort of leverage a greater degree of of innovation around uh, different ways of serving the need, which is people want to be cool and comfortable. Right. Right. Um, let me bring some of the audience members into this conversation and open it up to some questions and answers before we go into a short break. So I'm going to take a few questions at a time, and then uh, please just uh, you know state your affiliation as well, if you could, and uh, we'll take it. All right, yes, sir. And I believe we have uh, people roving with some microphones. Hi, uh, Bruce Guthrie, retired computer nerd. Um, the hazards of monopoly uh, consolidation of the industry was mentioned. One of the reasons that happens is because of patent laws. Do you know if the patents for these are going to be generally available for cheap, or is this going to be something that one company basically buys the entire thing and charges through the nose? That's great. Let's. Uh, do you ha have anybody? I, we can, I can open that up to anybody else. Anybody else have a question? I can take one or two more. Yes, sir, over there, and then gentleman right here. I'm Bob Hershey, I'm a consultant. How do these interface with the electric system? Electric system, and then one final one over here. Hi, I'm Hussein from Matrix. We're a Silicon Valley material science company, and we do thermoelectric cooling with no refrigerants. Um, so my question actually is, what is the most important in for this challenge? Is it uh, the energy efficiency, or is it the uh, getting rid of the refrigerants, harmful gases, because those are two things to optimize two different points, uh, which is like, is there one that has more weight uh, or not? Yeah, great. Um, Gabby, do you want to take that last one? Or? Sure, so if you actually go on the website for the Global Cooling Prize uh, .org, I believe, if I should, not, not behind me, um, there actually should be a tool that you can use to play around with the values for the reduction in electricity use and the GWP of refrigerant or not. Uh, so that actually will show you directly how those two interplay in the 5X criterion. Excellent. Did you, one thing I, I liked, David, you had a, you had a great graphic of, of the two pathways mm -hmm. of development. The great thing about a prize is we know the destination. We just don't presume we know what the pathway to get there is, and the destination is is, is this 5x improvement in, in, in climate impact. So, so be, that's why it's, it's sort of open. We want to use a level playing field. There may be multiple pathways. Mm -hmm. Right. And what about the, the patents question? Um, who can address that? So I, I'll take a shot, and I'm going to ask Ian if I mess anything up here to correct me if I'm wrong and correct this, the, the answer. But we have very distinct intellectual property rules and governance in the way the uh, submittals will be handled, and so I encourage you to, again, refer to the Global Prize website to get those details. But basically, we want those that submit their ideas to own the rights to the patents 
if they get to the point where they've succeeded through and are identified as the one of the ten finalists or conceivably even the winner, then I think it's really up to the owner of the patent to decide how they want to manage their portfolio in the end. It's all about getting this thing through to an actual manufacturable state and bringing those large, I don't want to call them monopolies because they're not, they compete fiercely with each other for price and margin, um, to, to bring the winners to the market. And that's what we want to enable. Did I get that right? Thank you. Great. And then we also had a question regarding the interface with the electric system. Yeah, so it's a good question. I think in the prize competition design, to not preclude the types of technologies that it could be brought, there are actually three types of testing that are going to be done to allow for different types of, uh, where was the, like, over there, sorry, the different types of technologies um, that may compete. But I think the final stage is actually direct simulation in an apartment building, which I believe is going to be electrically powered unless the whatever technology has an on-site source. So uh, we are not presupposing the, the there, technology. There's, there's a whole criterion around scalability, which is really about the ability to deploy to be able to drop these into existing use cases as quickly as possible. So exactly to your point, that means it has to interface with, with, with appropriate yeah. uh, electrical uh, systems, electrical systems. Excellent. I can ask, we, I think we have time for maybe a couple more questions. Anybody has them? I'll just make a point on that last one while people are thinking of the question. I think Ian threw up a graphic that said there's, if we succeed in, in reaching the 5x objective, which we're all intent on hope and on achieving, that's 2,000 gigawatts of power plant production that will not be required. So ideally, we can see the impact of how this interfa interfaces with the grid by reduction in the need to produce bad power plants. And I think the statistic from the International Energy Agency is $2.9 trillion would need to be invested in generation, distribution, and transmission lines to meet the baseline projected cooling load by 2050. Without 5X. Our Without 5X. Our challenge and our, therefore our opportunity uh, can be underscored by uh, the fact that the Ontario Canada power system most years is now summer peaking. In other words, the air conditioning load in Toronto, which is far north, north of us, <laughs> Uh, uh, is more than that heating load uh, for the rest of Ontario. And, that, and look, that's the, that's the uh, uh, hypnotic charm of air conditioning. Once you get it, you love it, and you seal up your windows, and you leave it on all the time. And we know that, and, it's, and um, that's one of the challenges. Sure. But that's to, to the point about the uh, impact on the grid globally. Certainly also speaks to a changing climate. So, I mean, and this has been a great discussion. I mean, basically laying out uh, the dilemma that we have, um, the technological solutions that we are looking for, and the, the components of the prize. Um, much of the details, I think, uh, that you might want are available on the website. Um, so, uh, and we'll have plenty of opportunity here to discuss more with those that are, that are running the prize. So, thanks so much. Please give a hand uh, to this panel. All right, if I can get everyone's attention, we can get started. If people would be seated, please. The range of technologies we're seeing coming through the prize in terms of the short descriptions that we've seen are 
unbelievably exciting, I think promising and optimistic, and bring us the optimism that we need to solve the problems of this magnitude. But the other side of it is really thinking about what are the financial mechanisms, what are the tools that we have available, what are the, the, the systems that we need to have into place to see these solutions get to scale. Um, as we heard from the previous panel, this is not just about the prize, but it is really fundamentally about a movement, about the creation of new pathways for industrialization, about the future of the planet and the future of these economies. The rest of today's program will look closely at the ways to ensure that the technologies that we identify through the Global Cooling Prize are deployed at scale. And to get things off, we're delighted to have John Room, Senior Director for Climate Change at the World Bank, deliver a keynote address to frame the issues around climate finance. At the bank, John only leads a team of specialists, but works across the World Bank Group to advance the institution's climate change agenda. In nearly 30 years at the World Bank, John has had a number of roles relevant to the cooling dilemma, and we're honored to have him today to share his thoughts today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce to you John Room. So thank you and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so let me start, so as you know, uh, the World Bank Group is focused on eliminating extreme poverty and improving shared prosperity in a sustainable way. And so the starting point of our entry into this discussion is that cooling represents a massive development opportunity, if not a development imperative. So we've got 1.1 billion people that face immediate risks now from lack of access to cooling, the vast majority of these in Africa and in Asia. We also have a lot of data now that shows that higher temperatures impacts productivity. There was a study in 2018 in India that shows that the value of output declines by 3% for every degree that average temperature, the temperatures are over the average in the manufacturing sector. And you can see this in productivity data in warmer years in India than in others. And by 2050, there are estimates that show that the number of work hours lost because of extreme heat could be as high as 12% in some regions of South Asia and West Africa, or 6% of annual GDP. So you've got a productivity penalty that you're bearing from lack of cooling. But you also have supply chain difficulties. So every year, 1.5 million children die because of diseases that could have been prevented by vaccines but 25% of vaccines have to be thrown out because lack of cooling. Fixing this has a major health and health uh, cost effectiveness impact. Secondly, we probably lose up to 50% of food post-harvest in developing countries for lack of adequate cold chain. And if you just think about the emissions of that, let alone the, the, the value added, the emissions of that, if it was a country, I forget the data, it would probably be the fifth or sixth largest emitter of emissions, just simply that food waste. That's now, okay? If you think about going forward, 
Um, the demand for cooling is only going to increase. I'm sure many of you heard the statistics that in India, we've only got about 6% penetration rate of air conditioners. So if you look across a number of countries, we expect demand for cooling to increase fivefold by 2050, driven largely by countries in the tropics, India, China, Brazil, Indonesia being the really big ones, as a combination of those countries getting richer and the world getting warmer. So you can see there's a development benefit here, and there's a climate adaptation benefit. But you also know that we face this dilemma or this vicious uh, cycle where if we continue business as usual, in our effort to cool the planet, we're actually going to warm the planet as we move forward. And there's a bunch of statistics. We can argue about any one of them. But if you think about it now, just very simply, 2017, the one that strikes me, new room air conditioners globally, the power required to power those in 2017 outstripped the total amount of incremental uh, PV capacity edited, added in that same year. Conventional cooling techniques, refrigeration, air conditioning, fan devices, these sorts of things, account for 10% of global emissions. That is twice the total amount of carbon emissions generated from aviation and maritime combined. And we know that left untracked, these emissions are going to double by 2030, triple by 2100 with all of these things that I've talked about. So I'm sure you also know, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, the prize, if we get it right, could be at least one degree of, of centigrade of global warming by 2100 if we can get the energy efficiency down and phase out HFCs. Another way to think about this is we could avoid, by 2030, 1,500 medium-sized peak power plants, and by 2050, 2,500 peak power plants by improving 30% increase in energy efficiency. Now, we can argue with these numbers and the methodologies and all the rest of it, but the bottom line is these are damn big numbers, and you have here the proverbial triple win. Okay, if we can tackle this issue, we get development gains and improvements in livelihoods, and we get climate adaptation, and we get climate mitigation. So the size of the prize is huge. So what do we need in order to get there? And for ease of simplicity, I'm going to focus most of my remarks on the space cooling, even though the health value chains and the food value chains are very important. But that's a little bit more where the, where the focus on. So clearly, we've got to maximize energy efficiency and simultaneously phase out HFCs. I was intrigued by an estimate that said, if we want to stay on track in terms of meeting the climate goals, we at least need to meet the increased demand with 70% less energy, which by these calculations means a 300% increase in energy efficiency. So that means we need to develop the technologies and deploy them aggressively. But even then, we might still fall short of the targets that we need. So we're going to need better building design, better urban design in order to get there. Now, on the one hand, we know that we have current technology out there, maybe not deployed, current out there, that can make a big gain. Okay, we've got modern AC units that can reduce uh, energy demand by 30%. Uh, we've got a number of low or zero uh, GWP refrigerants uh, out there. We know that district cooling systems by deep sea water, these sorts of things can be 50% more efficient. I can go on and on, passive measures in terms of traditional white, of, uh, white roofs, better city planning. All of these things out there are commercially available at some scale, but are not yet fully deployed at the scale that we would need. That's even with existing technology. Beyond that, then, we need now then to develop 
further technology to be invented, tested, prototyped, manufactured, introduced into markets. It's going to take a long time. It's going to need a lot of R&D. But what's interesting is that the cooling industry has much lower historical R&D than a large number of other sectors. So we have something in the structure of this sector, and I used to be a corporate strategy consultant, I could get all geeky about this, but I'm not going to, about why this R&D level has been so low. But clearly, investing in R&D and developing the technology, pushing the technology envelope, is critical to make this work. It's a sine qua non. And that's why this cooling prize is so important, and hats off to RMI for doing this. It really is a very, very important building block. However, if we just look at the technology that's currently available that's not being deployed, this is not going to be enough by itself. So, what kinds of things need to be done? What are the barriers that are out there? So the first barrier that we might have is, you might have a technical solution, you might tell me in a lab it could be cheaper, but right now at current production scale, it just costs too much. So what can we do to accelerate the confidence of manufacturers that we're going to drive down that cost curve as quickly as possible? Now, traditional uh, air conditioners, etc., have many, many years of experience to drive down that cost curve and large amounts of scale. For these newer kinds of technologies, we've got to know that the demand is there. What kinds of things can we do? What kinds of things have been done? Number one, bulk procurement. Guaranteed bulk procurement from the public sector. That's what ESL did in India to drive down the cost of LED light bulbs. Number two, you might in the early areas be at a point where manufacturing is not quite at the level one would project in order to get there. Costs might be too high. So you could have advanced commitments from somebody to cover the short-term gap to ensure that you can drive down that cost curve. You could use concessional finance in order to do that. We have done this in a number of other sectors before. The World Bank has done it, and so have others. This is not an ongoing subsidy. It's a subsidy in those early years that will decline over time to ensure that you can get to market, not only for the current, but to create confidence that because this mechanism is there, even if it's not needed, manufacturers will then scale up the R&D, scale up the manufacturing, make the investments that are necessary. Second issue is getting the demand right. Okay, we've got a high capital cost, but we know we've got, in many of these things, opportunities for better life cycle costs. Right now, many of the space cooling decisions are not being made on a logical life cycle cost basis. Um, people are looking at the upfront capital. It might differ from segment to segment in the market, but it's generally a product. So what can we do, okay? We can start with better labeling and data. That's a good start. Um, we could start by putting more uh, cost and environment reflective energy policies in place so that you could make that um, number better. You could change procurement policy, particularly in the public sector, to cost out life cycling, life cycle costs in terms of making those procurement decisions rather than capital cost up front. And you can encourage the private sector to do that. You could also look at ways of addressing the institutional issues, the, the misaligned principal agent problem, where basically the people that benefit from the decreased energy costs are not necessarily the ones that be, benefit from, from these and, um, when you have a building and a, and a renter in a building. And, but we also know that there are institutional solutions, ESCOs, uh, other kinds of business models that can be used to overcome some of these. These ideas are, this is not stuff that I'm sucking out of my thumb or theoretical, these are things that have been used in other sectors. 
We've got to manage the new technology. We need a, a, a framework for technology transfer. You've got technology in one place but not in another. How do you do that in a way that protects the rights of the owner of that technology but allows it to disseminate? You need capacity building and training to make it happening. You need to deal with domestic manufacturers, both in terms of an opportunity. I think one of the reasons that India is really interested in this is they want their domestic manufacturing to grow. But if you have entrenched domestic manufacturers and the idea comes from outside, you're not only going to have a real life problem, you're going to have a political problem on your hands. So you've got to find some way of managing that. How do you create preparedness for domestic manufacturers? Again, things we've worked on. We can boost demand for these, these, these efficient uh, AC units, putting testing labs in place, import controls on low energy efficiency, bans based on used appliances, a whole range of things basically to manage the new technology. Third block is around what can we do in the financial sector? Because in the end, many of these things are going to have to be financed in one way, shape, or form. Okay, particularly on the industrial side, but also on the consumer side. How do you make this happen? So in many cases, you have sometimes lack of creditworthiness on the part of borrowers. You've got unfamiliarity of banks with the energy efficiency sector. They just don't understand it. And you've often got lack of credible data on the performance in terms of what you're doing. High transaction costs with disseminated small transaction people that are there. And if you're a banker and you've got a standard business that you know that you can deliver and you've got this new fancy fangled thing over here, you're not going to be the first one to dive in there. You need to put in place mechanisms to do this, subsidies, financing, ways in which you can over overcome this tax policy, a whole bunch of things that can be done. And again, these are things that have been done in various subsectors in various countries. There's also a need, I believe, for a pool of a significant of low transaction cost concessional climate money to accelerate this process. All of the things I've talked about, if you have to run around and find $20 million here, $5 million here, tailored proposal to the GCF, go to GEF, which is already reducing it, go to the Danes to find $5 million here, the transaction cost just gets too high. If we had a pot of money, a couple of hundred million dollars to start with, or even a billion dollars, that could be deployed, not willy-nilly, not generalized subsidies, but in ways that will transform this industry so that you grant that prize, it's a very good use of concessional finance. We've done some analysis of how you can use concessional finance. This meets all of the tests. So we need people to step up behind it in order to bang it. But it's not only the, um, the, 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 the units. Okay, we've got to think about what happens in the building sector. Okay, and it's, first of all, just simply changing the cooling of the buildings from the individual units to building level uh, systems that cool things. Um, but building design, and we travel by lack of codes at the moment. But the interesting thing is that if you have a look at the amount of infrastructure, particularly urban buildings that will be constructed in developing countries over the next 15 years, it's the same level as the total construction in all of history. So while, yes, there's an issue in some regions in Eastern Europe and other places about retrofitting, in large parts of Asia and Africa, this is new construction. Okay, we don't have to repeat the problem of a badly designed building putting window units in. Okay, the, getting this design right, getting the codes right, enforcing the codes is going to be absolutely critical. You need skills and education in order to make it. As I said, all of these are problems that are fairly well known and possible solutions that are fairly well known. 
and things that have been deployed in different places, but not together in an integrated way in a particular location with everybody pulling in the same direction. At the risk of offending somebody, you talk to the manufacturers and they'll tell you, well, we've got to have the demand piece, we've got to have the should uh, procurement. You talk to the governments and they say, well, prove to us that your technology works. Everybody sees a different piece of this and is focusing on different pieces. These have got to come together. And in most countries, we don't have integrated policies that are pulling in the right direction and we don't have laws that back these policies up. So if we want to get where we want to do, where we want to be, we've got to pull all of this together. And so I think one thing that's, that's very promising right now is India has a national cooling action plan. This is a very good step in the right direction. Okay, it comes together, says if we're going to address cooling, here's the overall strategy, here's the action, here are the different people that are going to implement it. Build in incentives, build in policies, and then I guess the prize would be in the next generation of NDCs, can countries put credible commitments in on the basis of improved cooling baked into their NDCs with their ministries of finance backing it so it's not just an idea that's been cooked up in a corner. This is the prize in terms of where we want to get there. Now, first question is, are we going to get the political will to make this happen? And so one important piece of this story I think has happened is we've got to be able to move the minds of politicians from the point of view that cooling is a luxury middle class good to something that's fundamental in terms of the development, adaptation, and mitigation goals of number one. And number two, we've got to show them that there is a short-term at least neutrality in terms of the investments versus the costs. Because with a politician, with a three, five year, seven year time frame, you can't tell them, oh, it's going to, you're going to make the world better in 20 or 30 years because of something that you have to bear the costs now. We've got to find a way to address this, and that's building the political capability. So that's the challenge, that's the opportunity that we have, and there are ideas out there. This is something that we at the World Bank Group are now very strongly focused on because it's so critical to our mission. And we've got experiences. So a lot of the things I've talked about come from the experience we've had, from the Montreal Protocol. We've got a large portfolio, over a billion dollars, most of it in Asia, and we know what it takes on the policy side to change refrigerants. And we've got some ideas in terms of how you can move those policies towards energy efficiency. And we've worked with domestic manufacturers in order to improve their, their effectiveness and to adapt to new technology. I still remember visiting one of these firms in Bangkok that we've worked at. So there is experience on that. We've got experience with energy efficiency. We've got 200 energy efficiency projects since 2010 worth over $16 billion that are currently under implementation. And we're working with uh, demand side, industrial public sectors, again, a large program that is moving. IFC, our IFC colleagues have, many of you know, their edge tool, they're working with buildings, they're supporting energy efficiency, so both sides have strong experience of what this takes. We're also moving ahead on analytics and capacity building, supporting national cooling plans. Uh, our SMAP window on energy, on energy is driving this. IFC's got a range of opportunities. We've got a number of projects in our portfolio, Mexico, India, that's driving this forward. That's good, but it's not enough. Okay, it gives us some experience, but we've got to take it to the next level. Now, at the corporate level, We've made a commitment to, number one, mainstream and increase our support to climate change globally. And so we have committed 2021 to 2025 
to, through our own resources and mobilized resources, to commit $200 billion over five years. That's double the amount that we've done in the last five years. In that, we've said we support 1.5 million gigawatts of energy saved through energy efficiency, including cooling, and support to low-carbon cities in 100 cities. So there are, these are corporate commitments that we have made with our board. But the important thing is it's not just meeting anything with those $200 billion or meeting anything with 1.5 million gigawatts, uh, gigawatt hours of energy savings. It's using those investments to push the frontier to do the kinds of transformational things that I'm talking about. If you talk about the $200 billion, we could easily invest that in solar PV. We're not going to. We're only going to put it in those areas where our investments will create the opportunity for the private sector to take it to scale in the future, to do things that are material for the Paris Agreement, and to do things that are going to have development impact. So as you can see, the size of the prize plus the capability is making this a very attractive and very important part for us. Now, I feel a little bit like Don Quixote waving it at his windmills and all the rest of it. It's not easy, okay? But let me talk about three things that we're putting together in order to try and drive it. The first is the what. We're going to be putting together over the next six to nine months, and Melina and Johannes are here, they're leading it, is what we're calling, for want of a better word, a sustainable cooling roadmap. So we've talked about all of these ideas, but how do you put them together in an integrated prioritized strategy that's care about how all of these things fit together, what are the priority actions, how do we actually move this forward? And so we're working with five user groups, building cities, industry, transport, and then the rural health cold chain. This is the substance, the what. And it's not like we're reinventing it. There's a lot of good ideas out there, but to put them in one place so that everybody can see this is what a potential roadmap would look like. Then the who. There's a large number of people working on that, many of you in this room, and there's a large number of co coalitions out there. Okay, we've got the, 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 the Kigali Amendment Partnership, we've got the CCAC, we've got UN Environment, SE for All, a whole bunch of people that are working on, each filling a certain part of a niche with a certain amount of advocacy and work. What we'd love to try and be able to do is for want of a better word, facilitate help a coalition of coalitions. Can we get this co these coalitions to all work together in a clearer way so we've got an understanding of who is doing what, where are the gaps, and how do we ensure that new initiatives fill the gaps and we all build on whatever he's doing and to try and somehow link this to the framework for action, the roadmap that we've had before so that you can get everybody pulling in the same direction. And so just very broadly, you know, if we had cooling manufacturers to commit to more R&D and taking a little bit of a step forward on low GHG equipment, energy, high energy efficiency. Governments committing to ensuring the market demand through MEPS, putting in place national or even sub-national plans that will actually pull these policy pieces together. And then have financing facilities from MDBs like ourselves, from Green Climate Fund, from others, to commit to put some of that financing. You can then begin to see, we'll start, we could start getting these coalitions to work together to start delivering on the things I talked about before. So of all of those opportunities, can we prioritize them, be clear who's gonna do what, and rather than having a little bit here, a little bit there, try and move so we can build the political and technical momentum to deliver this as an integrated whole. The third piece that we'd be 
working on is from our own side, what kinds of support could we provide going forward? Now right now, as many of you know, we work at the country level, we identify priorities for development and low carbon development, um, and this then shapes our program. Our hope is, our intent is, that by doing this analytics, we will make the opportunities very clear so that then ministries of finance will come to our representatives in the country and say, of the allocation that you're putting in, we want to increase the emphasis on these sources. Not because we're telling them to do it, but because they see it in their interest and then drives what we're doing. So we put some of our money where our mouth is. I would love us to be able to get to the UNSG summit in September where we can have the framework for a coalition of coalitions together, and at least an outline. This full roadmap won't be there, but some sense of some of the areas we could work on. Because it would be really great if we had some of these coalition representatives say, listen, we've got some ideas on how we're going to work together. We're committed to drive this forward. I think this would be an excellent vision. So to summarize what I think we've learned here. So first of all, any successful programs are going to have to be tackled holistically, covering policies, institution, information, data, financing, capacity building, technology. We can't have it uh, fragmented. Secondly, in order to move this forward from a financial perspective, low transaction cost standardization, aggregation, bulk purchasing, standardization, use of technical intermediaries is absolutely essential. Okay, every investor, every financial institution you talk to say, if you bring us some boutique kind of thing, we're never going to be able to do it. It's never going to move to scale. We've got to standardize what we're doing. And third, we've got to be able to deliver standardized, simple financing and delivery mechanisms that meet the conditions in a particular local market. Okay, of all of those things, what's going to work in Delhi is not what's going to work in Singapore, is not what's going to work in Beijing. And so we're going to have to be able to tailor this. So the image that I've been using, and some apologies for those of you who've been heard before, heard me say this before, and I've been told not to say it, but I'm going to say it in any case. We've got to make the elephant dance. What does this mean? You've heard the story of the three blind men and the elephant. So there's an elephant standing there. Somebody grabs the leg and says the elephant is actually like a tree. Somebody grabs the, the tusk and says the elephant is like a spear. Somebody grabs the trunk and says the elephant is like a snake. Okay, that's pretty much where we are in cooling. Okay, somebody looks at it and says it's a technology problem. Somebody says it's a standards problem. Somebody says it's a bulk procurement. Somebody says it's lack of political will. But we don't all see it in the same way. So the first thing we've got to be able to do is to describe that elephant in the same way. I think it's more complicated because a lot of the stakeholders are like people that want to try and get this elephant to dance or to carry wood or to do something, to be a productive elephant. But until we work together, so the one that seems it's only a leg, the one that thinks it's only a spear, until we can get them to work together, we're not going to be able to get this elephant to dance, uh, to walk, let alone dance. So clearly, so the analogy I'm using is can we pull together the stakeholders that will allow us to make this elephant dance, because that is the way that we're going to build on the great work that's being done through this cooling prize to allow it to deliver on its real potential in terms of getting the impact that we want. So, thank you very much. That was great. I guess the question I would start off with is how do multilateral institutions and bilateral institutions like USAID not destroy markets through their actions, but actually incentivize the private sector to go in and build markets? So I think there's, there's a, partly it's a mindset. And so I think part of the, the mindset shift that we're going through in the World Bank Group is from one where we've said, we've got a certain amount of money, let's invest it, and let's reward our teams on the basis of the investments that they make. To change the mindset to say, actually what we need to do 
It's to use that money to create the markets in the future. So that's one piece. So that you're actually having to be able to show how do you create, number one. Number two, we've got to focus on leveraging finance as one of the key elements of our performance contracts. And so if you come in, and we need to create the incentives which we're doing for our energy teams, for example, that when they're working in a particular country. In the past, if they'd done a direct investment in a solar-fired power plant or in an energy efficiency activity, they got rewarded for it. But can we reward them on the same basis if they crowd in private sector financing? So you're rewarded, in fact, more for a small investment that leverages a big amount than doing that big investment yourself. That pushes you uh, to the frontier. And then the third one is to be very disciplined about how we use subsidies and concessional finance. And there is a group that works together across the development finance institutions now that's very clear on the conditions under which you use concessional finance. And in, in IFC, our private sector wing, we have a committee that's independent of the investment vice presidency that actually makes the investment, that evaluates all of these proposals to make sure that that financing meets the strict standards of creating markets rather than destroying markets. Are there things that we could do in the multilateral development uh, institution space to reduce risk for the private sector? And could you give some examples of that? So I think that there's, there's a huge amount of things that we can do, um, some of which I touched on in the discussion. So one is clarity on policy, okay, and stability on policy. If we had a clear sense of what the policy was, get some commitments from government on certain kinds of policies, and then we can build that into our development policy loan. So we will provide financing if they implement and they make these policies sound. So getting the policy environment right is a key piece of what's going Second one is, in many cases, there are public infrastructure investments that we have made that reduces the risk for other private sector investments. So in, it's probably more applicable in renewable energy than in energy efficiency, but often we will ensure that the land has been procured and put the evacuation lines in, and then the private sector just puts the, um, uh, the, the, the panels in. Okay, the other area that's probably more applicable in this case is often uh, you have a private sector investor that is facing a borrower on the other side that might not be creditworthy. So there's financial structuring things that we can do to actually improve that concern about the creditworthiness. So we could have a mezzanine financing is one way of doing it. Having a guarantee that would trigger if there was a policy default that we would then claim that loan back from the government and create a positive cycle. We could also do instruments that we do, we can do it in, in, in solar panels, but we could also do it theoretically in energy efficiency, where if the, if the, uh, the, the technology doesn't perform according to specs, there's ways of putting insurance on those kinds of products and we can find ways. Of, so there's a range of things that we can do to reduce risk, because I think in a lot of cases, and one of the reasons it works is that first I think that in many of these green industries, the perceived risk is higher than the actual risk. Mm. So if we put the guarantees and the mechanisms in place, we believe those are not going to be called at the rate that the private sector thinks it's going to get called. Okay, that's number one. Second thing is, we're not just covering risk. In many cases, we can better manage that risk. Okay, it's project management 101. You assume the risk where it can be managed. And so because on the, we can manage risk on policy side, because there's things that 
that investors and public people won't do against us, we can help better manage that risk going forward. You brought up a really interesting point, which was about scale. And there is a long-going debate in international development, um, does anything scale? And in fact, if you know, I remember looking across 50 years of USAID funding, you know, approximately a trillion dollars of investment, and it was a handful of things that we could say truly got to global scale uh, across the world, from vaccines to other things. On the other hand, there's the argument there are things like the cell phone that have clearly gotten to scale across what we're doing. What are the best way to get things to scale, and how do we make sure that we provide equal opportunity for the more disruptive technologies that are out there for us? So I, you, know, you may have incremental technologies that are being done by the large air conditioning manufacturers, but some of the best ideas that could have the biggest breakthroughs could be those smaller startups that are in Palo Alto or in, or in other places. What do we do to help all of those things have an equal chance? Okay, I think there's, there's two, there's yeah. a small startup and then there's the, the how do you bring things to scale. And clearly bringing things to scale, this is the big challenge we need to think about. And I think we should look back at what are the kinds of things that we've done in the past in closely related areas that have had impact to bring it to scale. And so the two that I like to quote, one is the one that I touched on earlier, what ESL in India has been able to do with the LED light bulbs. LED light bulbs weren't there, they were $6 a bulb, then are 50 cents a bulb, and through a combination of backup financing plus bulk procurement, okay, and a few other things that were thrown in on the side, okay, they were able to expand that market. And it wasn't because of a, a particular invent, nobody went out and said, here's $50 million to buy light bulbs. Okay, it was creating that market, creating the incentive that allowed it to come to scale. The second thing that I think has been very effective is what we call scaling solar. And so that's basically, rather than, than just saying, well, we're going to finance an individual solar power plant, to say, can we create the institutional mechanism for a standardized set of auctions? So you, you have an auction, so you go from a feed-in tariff to an auction, you produce standard bidding documents, standard contractual documents, standard financing documents with standard terms that are all readily available. So when the private sector can come in and bid on this, they know that a lot of those risk elements have already been cooked in and dealt with through the contractual documents and the procurement documents, and they don't have to run around and look for finance because here's a state set of offices of finance. Okay, that's something that we used in, in, in Zambia, in Argentina, Ethiopia, Madagascar, West Africa. So I think focusing a little bit more on the institutional mechanisms and to use the financing that we have to pilot and drive these institutional mechanisms is what would, would give us to scale. Now, how you open the opportunity for smaller investors and smaller things, disruptive things that you, you haven't heard about, um, that to me, I, I don't know that I have a simple silver bullet. I think that there are some of the policy things that we can do would be things that would increase the size of the market and allow a large number of people to come in. So if you set high and increasing standards, for example, minimum standards for energy efficiency in a particular country for an air conditioner, 
and you say, listen, it's at this level now, it's going to be increasing over time, and by the way, we're going to have life cycle-based bulk procurement with backup financing plans that would allow this to happen, you then start sending messages. Now, there is an opportunity, because obviously the, you then get into the debate of whether the entrenched large manufacturers are better to respond to that, or the small ones are, but hopefully you'll create the innovation in any case in order to try and drive where this is going in the future. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Please give it up again for John. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to invite up now the panel. Uh, we have a great panel with uh, Eric Toon, Executive Managing Director of Breakthrough Energy Ventures, William Martin, the former Deputy Secretary of Energy, as well as Executive Secretary of the National Security Council, uh, Stacy Swan, who's CEO of Climate Finance and Advisors and also worked on blended. And Alex and Sarah Laslaw and others wanted me to be here was a little bit to bring this sort of development uh, perspective. Uh, but you didn't come here to, to listen to me. So I just wanted to start by saying that uh, I will be leaving here and applying to be the president of uh, Gina McCarthy's fan club <laughs> for those that were here. That was amazing. Uh, I am a little bitter that she took my it's cool to be here joke. Um, and so I'll just, I, I guess I'll just start by saying I'm not cool enough to be an expert in this space and, and leave it there. Um, but I also wanted to kick it off by, by you know, I think that John's, um, little armchair here was, and, and his excellent speech, was a really good primer for, for this conversation that we're going to have uh, with these uh, really all-star all panel. I'm typically not a fan of prizes, to be honest with you. In, in the development space, there's a lot of these. Mm -hmm. um, we've tried this a lot, and there's really good PR, there's really good like YouTube videos that come out of prizes, and, and it, you know, there's a lot of good stuff, but generally speaking, being a little unfair here, but generally speaking, we miss this conversation about scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the reason that, while I'm not a huge fan of prizes generally, I am a huge fan of this prize, is because they have not only made it a core part of today, with a whole entire panel of experts talking about scale, but they've created something, um, let me get this right, called the Investment and Scaling Committee for win winners and finalists. So while it's great that they have 1,600 inquiries and 178 ideas across 36 countries, that's awesome. It's even better that they have this concerted focus on scale. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to be here uh, with you guys. I'm going to start off with Dr. Eric uh, Toon. So Dr. Toon, I'll just call you Eric if that's okay. It's, it's uh, shorter. It's okay. Uh, he's the Executive Managing Director of Breakthrough Energy Ventures. He has a long and storied history in academia, he, uh, mostly at Duke University. He was seconded to the U.S. Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, ARPA, not to be confused with DARPA, DARPA uh, which at CSIS, you'll know, takes up a lot of oxygen. Um, so we wanted Dr. Toon, or Eric, we wanted you to be here. Tell us a little bit about how you think about scale. Use your academic hat, use your uh, government hat, whichever hat looks best on you today. Um, how do you think about scale? So I think scale has incredibly important consequences for how you bring technologies impactfully to market. I've always been interested in translation or the idea of taking mm -hmm. fundamental knowledge and converting that knowledge into goods and services that can impact people's lives. 
I sort of grew up professionally, as it were, uh, at Duke University. Duke, of course, is primarily a great basketball program, but there is also a university there. Uh, that university is mostly uh, a, a medical school with a university attached to it, and so it's hard to escape uh, medicine. And so I, I grew up uh, learning translation in the context of, of pharma and the development of drugs. And I've brought a couple of drugs to market now uh, through companies. Glaucoma. Glaucoma, yeah. yes, two drugs for glaucoma. Uh, 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 through companies that we, we created while I was at Duke. And so you see how scaling works in the pharma space, right? How you move a drug towards market, and that happens in an incredibly prescribed fashion managed by the government, right? So there's, it's, it, you know exactly how you chug along there. I came to uh, Energy and to ARPA-E in a funny way. A friend asked me, ARPA-E got started in a huge panic at the beginning of the Obama administration with the big slug of Recovery Act money, and so mm. uh, I was totally, completely, utterly unqualified for the job um, when, I, when I went. But uh, an advantage that I did have is I got to look at a space with, with kind of an unbiased or a fresh set of eyes. I, I, I sort of knew nothing uh, at all about energy, and I think that sometimes gives you a, a unique perspective. Un unquestionably, the, the, the most incredible attribute of the whole energy game that you're just sort of gobsmacked with when you start is scale, mm. right? And we do energy at scales that dwarf any other human activity. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible to conceive the scale that, that we do energy at. And, and I collect these, these little sort of um, uh, vignettes to try and help you understand what scale means in energy. And one of my favorites uh, today is the, the Hebron Ben Nevis oil field that ExxonMobil and others are developing in the North Atlantic. Exxon and its partners will spend about $5 billion to open that field. Um, they'll spend about another three or four billion dollars to operate it over its lifetime, which is expected to be about 30 years. So today, ExxonMobil is hiring young men and women who will work on Hebron Ben Nevis oil field for their entire professional lives. Hmm. Uh, over the course of its lifetime, it's expected to produce about 750 million barrels of oil. That's a lot, right? Which is eight days of global supply. That's not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, you know, th that's what scale uh, means in the energy game and that has enormous consequences for how you impactfully bring technologies to market. So it's perhaps not a surprise that the first round of, of venture financing in the clean tech game failed and failed miserably. Mm. Uh, the notion that there hasn't been money invested in this space is clearly wrong. Uh, over the first decade of this century, there was perhaps more than $25 billion uh, invested in the clean tech space using exactly the same venture model that we used and had used a tremendous effect in the tech game. Uh, by 2011, basically all of that money was gone. Hmm. It had all been written off. Um, and, and what you discovered basically is that when things have mass, when things have momentum, they scale differently than apps and iPhones. Um, and if we're honest about how we do tech investing, I look at 50 opportunities, 43 of them I'm pretty sure aren't going to work. The other seven, I don't know. So we'll give them a little bit of time and a little bit of money. And that's fine in tech because a little bit of time is six months or a year and a little bit of money is $500,000. I thought you said the last seven were just totally not going to work. So <laughs> 43 most likely won't work and the, seven, the last seven have no shot. You, you, yeah. you, you, you don't know. <laughs> but the, 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 the problem in, in energy, of course, when things have scale and mass and momentum is that a little bit of time is five years and a little bit of money is $30 yeah. million. Yeah. And you just can't do the throw the spaghetti at the 
wall uh, sort of game. So Breakthrough Energy Ventures was created by Bill Gates and a group of high net worth individuals. It was designed to be a private sector counterpart to the public sector mission innovation mm. and hopefully capture some of the innovations that came out of mission innovation and that public sector uh, investment. It was created purposefully with a number of differences compared to uh, the, the, the sort of tech investing uh, model. I think it's too early to know whether it's going to be successful or not, but at least uh, we've tried something different. But because of the special consequences of scale and the timelines that are involved in impactful development and deployment of energy technologies, I think we need lots and lots and lots of other uh, new funding mechanisms, public-private partnerships, blended forms of capital between private equity and venture, things like that. It, it, we, we clearly need uh, new approaches to financing energy uh, technologies, and that's largely a consequence of the unique scale at which we do energy. Yeah, and it strikes me that when we talk about scale, one of the things that we immediately pivot to is, is financing. And, and you heard that with John's remarks. Uh, we just heard it with Eric's. Um, I can't think of a better softball sort of tee up for, for Stacy Swan. Stacy is the CEO and founding partner of Climate Finance Advisors. Uh, she has a long and storied history at the World Bank Group, the IFC, which we, we heard some about with John. Um, prior to the World Bank, she did work in the infrastructure space in India and Singapore, but I'm told I'm not supposed to go that far back. So <laughs> I, I won't. Way back when, yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of you know technical um, India knowledge, we won't go there. But I, I think Stacy, it's great to have you on this, and I think let's get into some of the the nitty gritty and the and the nuts and bolts on in the finance space. So how do you think about scale from that finance perspective? Um, yeah. So um, thanks, Errol, and thanks for having me on this panel. I'm um, I'm really happy to be here, and um, thanks to CSIS and RMI and Conservation Labs. Um, and this cooling prize is really fascinating for me. Um, in part because on all of these issues, but in particular on cooling, we need an all-of-the-above approach. Yeah. And I think this is a really nice way to start catalyzing some of the technological advances that we need. Um, we also need an all-of-the-above approach on financing. Um, and I will, I will um, take a little bit of a sidestep to go back to what Gina um, some of the remarks that Gina said because she was great and um, she made a couple of points that I think are worth remembering when thinking about financing. The first is we don't speak the language of each other. The R&D folks, the technology <coughs> folks, the manufacturing folks, the government folks, and the financing folks all speak somewhat of a different language when it comes <coughs> to talking about how to finance these things or accelerate these things and that's really important. Um, I also think it's important to note that um, over the last, let's say, two to three years, maybe five years, maybe you could go back about five years, um, the finance community is really waking up mm. to the opportunity side of investing in things other than renewable energy, so other than the mitigation part of the climate challenge. Part of that is because we're starting to get more aware, um, more woke, I guess. Yes, kind of to, it's, you to can the, use that word, yes. Yes, more woke, okay. We're, the finance community is getting more woke to the risks, frankly. Yeah. Um, we are starting to see on kind of um, the revenues, assets, and costs of balance sheets of our investments, the risks from the impacts of climate change. And this is having a really interesting ripple effect in terms of what investors are looking for 
for opportunities. Um, and so kind of bringing it back full circle to the cooling idea, I don't think, um, at least in my experience, I was at the World Bank Group for 13 years. Prior to that, I was on the, on the developer side with a big energy developer in India. Um, and before that, I worked for some tech companies, um, you know, also accessing capital markets and raising money. Nobody was really thinking about climate except for renewables. Up until the last, I would say, two, maybe three years. Now, so that's good news. Um, there's starting to be some awareness among some investors. The DFIs, the MDBs are leading the pack on this. Um, so are the institutional investors. But institutional investors don't invest at the level of consumer financing. So when it comes to scale, from a financing perspective, the all of the above approach needs to include, it needs to include the big money. And how do you get the big money kind of together? What do you need to do to, to pull that together, pull those fund structures together? And John had some good, um, some really good kind of um, key elements of that. Keep it simple, lower the transaction costs, make sure your contracts are standardized so you can bundle up, attract private investors, maybe blend in some concessional or development capital, particularly for emerging markets mm -hmm. um, or particularly for risky technologies. But also, and this is something that I think we forget when we get in the conversation around climate finance, we focus on those really interesting kind of fund structures or green bonds or aggregation vehicles. But we also forget that you have to get the money down to the consumers. And there's a whole financial ecosystem that needs to be uh, stitched together, um, frankly. And all of the money needs to flow down to that level so that your consumer, who's driven by that cost Point when they walk in to buy their air conditioner. And again, kind of we, we talked, Gina talked about the equity issue and the first panel talked about the equity issue, but you know, at least in this country, 47% of Americans can't withstand a $400 emergency. Yeah. That seems to be right about the cheapest air conditioner you can buy mm. if your air conditioner goes out. So you have to figure out ways to get kind of financing and incentivize people who don't have a lot of money kind of at their disposal to buy the air conditioner that has the right um, the energy efficiency you need and the kind of best standard technologies. And what do you need to do in the ecosystem to get it all the way down there? So you can, you can focus on scale for the big money, and there's a lot of really good examples there. Yeah. Again, both institutional investors and also the development community has been doing this for 15 years or so with their work on blended finance. All of that stuff has got a lot of good lessons of experience, and I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's not new. So those scaling vehicles can be put together. But then thinking about how to pull that all the way down to consumer financing so that these kinds of technologies can be purchased by the people who need them most is gonna be important. And, and then I'll, I'll say, because you brought it up, um, or it was brought up in the conversation with John about reducing risk, um, and kind of linking it back to this opportunity set, um, it's true that for emerging markets and a lot of the work that happens around concessional finance or blended finance or development finance, this is a dance around um, uh, reducing perceived risks versus real risks. But I think you can turn this particular topic into a huge opportunity set. 175% growth projections in, in just um, rack air conditioners 
in the next 20 years is huge for any investor in India, yeah. China, all of the emerging That's markets. That's a business opportunity. That is a huge business opportunity, and we should be capitalizing on that and figuring out where to get the, invest the investors who really want a piece of that pie kind of focused. So, uh, first of all, I think woke to the risks of climate change, probably... Uh, Tweetable. You know, first of all, it's a great hashtag. Yes, <laughs> definitely a great hashtag. Also, I, I think most people in so. here are probably woke to the risks of yeah. uh, climate change. I think that was really excellent. When I think about development finance, um, I, I think about from the consumer level all the way up to, by the way, Bill Gates, I think, co-started his, so when you talk about big money, you guys should exchange business cards maybe at the, at the end <laughs> yeah. of this. It uh, sounds like a match made in heaven. But I think when you're talking about the, the big money and the big projects down to the consumer, at each stage of that, there's going to be different tools and different institutions and different people. So in this particular space, um, whether it's cooling or energy in general, when you're talking about scale, where are the gaps in that finance ladder that, that you see? Um, it certainly depends on the market. Um, in this country, we've got a lot of big banks and a lot of small community banks and not much in between. So, mm. you know, it, each market has its own um, inconsistencies in that chain. Um, and you have to figure out what's missing and how you can best fill that role. In fact, in emerging markets, the development community and the development finance community is starting to think about this in, in pretty tangible ways. Um, you know, there, there's, like I said, there's a lot of big financial institutions, but not a lot of small financial institutions, mm. all the way down to um, consumer finance and the micro, micro credit. Um, so it is a market, it kind of is dependent on market by market. But in the, it, there is an opportunity, I think, given that, um, uh, you have a building, you've got the building sector and you've got the consumer sector, you probably have an opportunity to do some um, white goods financing, mm -hmm. leasing type models also. You've got some really interesting um, parallels with, um, you know, with, with those kinds of financing approaches. No, that's, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, thank you for that, Stacey, and thanks again for being here. I'm going to move to Bill Martin. Bill, thanks for being here. Uh, you were uh, on the National Security Council and, and you were um, Deputy Secretary of Energy under President Ronald Reagan, uh, during which I'm assuming you were a child prodigy, um, <laughs> seeing as how you, Thank you. You look great, Bill. Um, <laughs> I just had a child eight weeks ago. My wife is no here. No kidding. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Really Congratulations. Yeah, Yay. she's here too. Can, can we give a, eight weeks uh, old, yeah. a round of applause? I, uh, I started the Human Genome Project as well at DOE, and I'm hoping it'll pay, pay off in my personal case. I think, I think that's probably uh, happening. No, and, and you did mention that your wife was here, so we'll, we'll assume that you'll be on your best behavior uh, throughout the course of the Or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but Bill, so w one of the things that we think about in terms of scale is, you know, what's the role of, of governments to create kind of the enabling environment for private sector growth. We talk about this a lot in development world and, and our project here is the project on prosperity and development, which is code for how do we crowd in private investment? How do we crowd in the private sector? So from, from your uh, experience, both in government and then what you've done since, um, how do you think about scale, especially from that creating the enabling environment uh, piece? 
Well, having run a very large program, which was mainly nuclear weapons in 1986, we've had to transition out of that into more profitable, renewable, and other sources of energy, but first scale. Um, there'll be 10 billion people on the planet in 2100. Now that's a pretty good scale. In addition to my daughter, it'll be 10 billion and one. <laughs> There's seven billion people today. A billion people don't have electricity. You gotta build an electricity system for six billion people and you gotta replace and repair the old electricity. Um, I had the opportunity to meet with the president about two months ago and I said the greatest infrastructure project in world history is gonna be electricity development, period. Any company is gonna be interested in that. And it, it really starts at the production level, whether it's natural gas, clean coal, nuclear, solar, renewables, uh, or whether it's the appliance sector, which is why I like this prize so much. Mm. By the way, Amory Levins and I were roommates and office mates at MIT in 1972. That was before wow. Rocky Mountain Institute was born. I have great admirer, by the way, of Rocky Mountain and all the sponsors today. But, but frankly, um, the private sector is going to carry a lot of the load in this. And I think facilitating rather than replacing yeah. uh, the private sector is going to be very important. Let's take Japan. I have a couple friends here from Japan who we were sitting with. Think of Japan, 70 years from rumble to prosperity. Not only is it the third largest economy in the world, but it's the most efficient. If you take dollars per, uh, or yen per carbon produced, it's the lowest in the world. And they did it from scratch. Now why can't the appliances of Japan be transferred to the developing countries? Well, obviously cost. Why in some cases is China eating our lunch and will continue to eat our lunch in appliance sales? Because they're the Walmart standard. Cheap, not so efficient technology. How do we even the, the tables with China? Because if we really think about it, where are all these appliances going to be produced? Where is the scale going to come from? Is it going to be from state-sponsored companies that can afford a long-term risk or export their workers in addition to uh, uh, to their products, or is it going to be OECD economies, or is it going to be India? Now, India, how clever to have a prize. They've got the biggest market in the world for air conditioning. I am sure that there are a lot of bright people that, that are saying, wow, if we can manufacture in India, we can export that technology, which raises lots of interesting questions about this prize. I might add, I 1974 uh, worked at the World Bank with MIT, and we looked at patterns of development. You know, one could have foreseen all of this. And in fact, we did in 1974. We ran the Simlink model. And we knew that free trade was very important to economic development. Probably the most important thing, free trade investment. In the 80s, free trade opened up. And we've had economic miracles around the world. So how do you continue that? Um, per capita income is the most important determinator because it $100 per capita, you might get a cooker. At $400, you might get a heater. At, at maybe $1,000, you get an air conditioning. At $5,000 per capita, you get uh, a car. And I think the amazing thing, institutions like the World Bank, multilateral institutions, know that patterns of development are very, very key to solving economic poverty problems. We're very prosperous today. We will continue to be. That's one of the reasons why people are interested in climate change. First, you've got to get economic growth. Then you've got to get jobs. And one thing I mentioned to the president, and I, I 
I've unabashedly said, if you want to solve global problems, look at infrastructure, look at electricity, look at economic development, migration issues, certainly, from poverty to rich states, extremism, again, dependent on economic development, climate, clean water, clean air. The number one challenge, in my view, is not necessarily climate, it's economic development. But with that will come the motivation and the resources to solve climate as we move to that 10 billion planet. When I think about, I'm glad you brought up China. When, when, when I think about China, uh, they are playing a global leadership role. And, and you know, the US sort of pulling out of the, the Paris uh, climate process uh, for now. Um, I think has created an opportunity for China, but I wonder, I, I'm sure that there are people in China that really do truly care and are, and are woke to the risks of climate change. I don't doubt that at all. <laughs> let, me, uh, let, me, let me say, having been in Beijing in 1984, it was clean air which was the priority. Right. So if you clean up the coal so you can breathe, you get the benefit of reduced carbon. I'm not so sure it was climate change that sure. motivated them as opposed to breathable air. So I think that, that was, a, a, especially around the Olympics, that was a powerful motivator. But I think especially in this you know, end of 2016, beginning of 2017 period, you saw Chinese leadership in this space. I think, sure, some people cared about it, but I think you saw Chinese leadership come into this space because they saw immense economic opportunity. Um, and so I, I think, and, and I, I don't think you'll find me or, or too many people that fault them for that. I think the implementation of that uh, certainly, and, and we talked about, John talked about life cycle costs. I think those are really important considerations. But can I just ask you a, a quick follow-up, Bill, on this enabling environment piece? So I, I think that I agree with you that governments have a big role to play here. And maybe this is a question that I'll, I'll ask to all the panelists once we get to Jason as well. But, you know, what, is it, what does that mean in practice? What can the government, other than just being, uh, you know, cognizant that this is a problem that ultimately the private sector needs to play a big part in, what, what can and, and should the government do, whether it's our government or let's include institutions in that? Well, I think uh, standards. Standards. Now, if, if you go back to debates between Republicans and Democrats, I would always say on CAFE, for example, to the Democrats, you give me CAFE, but maybe open up ANWR, let's say. Do a bit of a political consultation. Why was I concerned then about ANWR? Because I was worried about Middle East oil dependency. Mm. I mean, really, think of the two wars we fought more recently just over so many issues related to the Middle East. Now, fortunately, we can, we can bring a few people home, which I think is a very good thing. But for a long time, I used to go to a lot of CSIS sessions on oil and Persian Gulf and problems. And I used to say, well, gee, you reduce carbon, you help climate, and you reduce and increase national security. So my issue for scalability is, is the president or secretary interested in it? Yeah. Can you get people behind this at the highest levels? And now I go to Japan next uh, month in Osaka. Abe will chair the G20. What a great opportunity. I believe India is a member of the G20 to raise issues like this. So at the, at the highest level of our governments, we should be supporting the cooling initiative and so forth. And even people should be made aware of this prize mm. at that meeting. I think it's a terrific way 
uh, to spur innovation, which is really what we need to do. I just wonder what's going to happen when this prize is won and who's going to take that technology and develop it. I think that's a good challenge for those uh, of you involved with the prize. And, and just a quick plug for our energy and national security program. Those conversations still happen here. And I, and I would argue that they're the most robust in town, they maybe are. even anywhere. So kudos to Sarah Ladislaw and her team. Uh, Jason, I've I want to turn to you. i to say about that too, by the way. Yeah. Well, let me give you a quick intro and then we'd love to hear <laughs> you heap more praise on CSIS. Uh, we're definitely okay with that. Um, Jason Harkey, you're the president of the Alliance to Save Energy. Uh, you have a past life in the Department of Energy yourself, um, but have, have gone out uh, to create this alliance. So. Um, we wanted to have people who had an academic viewpoint, who had a government viewpoint, who had a finance viewpoint, and then we also wanted to have a viewpoint of, of people that have done this, that have scaled, and that have actually, actually implemented this stuff. And, and my understanding of the Alliance is that your members and, and the groups that you work with have actually done this. So how do you think about scale and, and you know, how have you actually been able to achieve it? Sure. <clears throat> I want to divide up the conversation a little bit, at least in uh, my contribution, into three parts. Uh, one, I want to talk about um, policy and the role that, that policy plays, which mm -hmm. I think is big. I want to talk about uh, a bit about innovation, and nobody said in the word innovation more than Secretary Moniz, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I, I'm going to defer on finance, but the other one that I think is so big is, is finance. Yeah. Um, at the Alliance, we've been an organization for 42 years. We were formed the same year as the Department of Energy in 1977 by wow. two senators, mm -hmm. uh, Hubert Humphrey and Chuck Percy, mm -hmm. Republican, Democrat, and um, we have a very bipartisan, unifying way of doing business and bringing folks together and saying, how do we plow forward? To the extent that we're talking about energy efficiency, which I think this, this prize is all about energy efficiency, how do we drive innovation in energy efficiency in a specific technology? That's what our organization is all about and has been all about. For the most part, our organization has looked at, looked at the issue about how do you get the right policy framework? And that policy framework cannot be understated, particularly in the context of this prize, right? So, and I, I don't think, maybe, um, maybe Ian said it in his, in his you know, great opening statement, but I may have missed it. But the standards is gonna be a huge factor in this. If we, if we get standards right, we know the problem. So if we get the standards making process right around the world, I know that's a huge challenge. We reduce the, uh, the projected energy growth um, from air conditioning by 50%. I mean, that's the first stake in the ground that I think that we, that we really need to put down and we need to build the coalition both internationally but also regionally and nationally to make sure that that's being done. The United States has had a tremendous standards program for a long, long time. Standards in the United States are saving us $2.4 trillion. That's the cumulative impact of the United States' work on standards. So again, this policy framework that's, that's being discussed here is invaluable. And again, what our organization does is pull together the stakeholders that are involved to make sure that we're continuing to advance the, um, 
the right policies because it doesn't happen by accident. Can you say that stat again? That's talk about tweets. Right. So so the net economic benefit of the standards program in the United States is two point four trillion dollars. Trillion with a trillion. T. I don't get to say wow. the T word very often, but yes, trillion. Right? Wow. So it's it again, you, I think that is the that's the foundation. And to me I kind of feel like that is that's the floor, right? And I think there's a lot of, you know, you have to do standards right. You have to, that has to be a partnership with industry. It has to be predictable. It has to be transparent. Um, you know, there, there, it's a conversation with industry. Uh, so it's, you know, but that, again, around the world is going to be very, very important. On the innovation side, I, you know, we have to nurture the entire R&D pipeline. And a lot of people think about R&D in, in terms of, you know, the, the basic science and some of the early stages. Uh, you know, in the, in the old days when we said R&D, there was a lot of folks that were starting to say R&D, D, and D, hmm. right? So the research and development, the, the demonstration, and the deployment. Now, I was at the, at, um, at the uh, DOE, I was in the building technologies office where David Nemzo, our, one of the previous speakers, was. And so you had good PowerPoints, too. I had to, yeah, yeah, but I got the, I got the yeah. notes, so I didn't use it. <laughs> but the, the, the point I wanted to make on, on R&D and that pipeline and why it's so important is because when, when you do R&D, and I, this has happened in so many instances, you can have the next-gen great you know, design, prototype, tested technology that then, guess what? It gets taken over here and it gets put on a shelf and largely gets forgotten. So, particularly in certain sectors, like buildings. Mm -hmm. um, I w did a lot of work with folks in the commercial real estate community and there's an old line that, um, you know, real estate is first in line to be second. Because guess what? A lot of these folks are risk averse. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to take a tech an unproven technology off the shelf, throw it into their building and say, mm -hmm. all right, you know, if anything goes wrong, they're in trouble. So that demonstration and deployment process of the pipeline is, you know, extremely valuable. We can't just go so far and then stop. Um, we have to go into these other areas. And again, I think government has a large role to play in that, but I also think the private sector, civil society has, has played an invaluable role. Uh, this effort, like this challenge, this, this prize is, is part of that dynamic. The one last thing I would say is these countries around the world, whether the United States, they're China, they're India, Japan, whoever it is, you know, this is, this is kind of like the old Vince Lombardi speech on winning. You know, innovation isn't that thing that you just kind of pop in and go, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be innovative today. <laughs> innovation, you have to, you know, it's, it's not a sometime thing, it's an all the time thing. That was the Vince Lombardi line, you know, mm. winning is a, is a habit. So the investment that we make in, in innovation and research and development um, you, it can't be static, it can't be um, partial. You know, we're fortunate in the, here in the United States that I think uh, policymakers realize that the $2.4 billion that's being invested in renewable energy and energy efficiency innovation uh, has a place that's going to stay, although unfortunately the president has, has you know, try to drastically reduce that, that innovation R&D. Um, but it's, it's, in, it's really, really important. And all these countries, I think, have to jump in. Because it's not just about innovation, but it's also 
and I think you were getting about getting to this quite a bit. It's about competition. Um, so the, the last quick point, just to bring it home, you know, if we if we weren't pushing as hard as we are on energy efficiency, and we weren't accomplishing as much as we have, we'd have we'd be using 60% more energy today. So because of things like cafe standards, because of appliance and equipment standards, because of various incentives and government programs and breakthroughs, um, we've, we've been able to make huge gains in efficiency and it's paid off and it's, and it's largely been a major economic development opportunity and I still see it like you do as a major economic opportunity. If we do this right, it's going to create an amazing amount of jobs. Energy efficiency in the United States represents 2.3 million jobs, um, which dwarfs all the other clean energy, uh, wind and solar and renewables. So. And I'm sure that the you know people that have applied uh, as part of the Global Cooling Prize would agree with you. I mean, winning some money as part of the prize is great. But man, wouldn't it be even better if we could take this to scale and yeah. actually make some real economic impact, not only for ourselves, but our communities. Um, Stacy and Eric, uh, I wanted to give you guys an opportunity. We are going to turn to questions, so please ruminate on what you'd like to ask uh, the panelists. But, you know, Stacy, uh, can you talk a little bit about this enabling environment piece a little bit more um, and or just reflect on some of the other things that you've, you've heard uh, from, from Jason and Bill. Yeah, and maybe I'll do it by answering the question, the, the previous question Perfect. that you asked also about what's the role of government, um, because it's, um, you know, it's not finance and private sector on the one hand and government on the other. They do interact, as we all know, right? Um, uh, I will, on the standards thing, I absolutely agree with you um, that standards is a huge role that governments play in, in creating and incentivizing best practice. And right. being even innovative in the way we apply and develop standards could be useful as well. Hmm. Maybe even having a standard this year that goes up next year that goes up next year to signal to the industry how to achieve certain things and a glide path that's predictable right. is a useful thing because part hmm. of the challenge in the standard space and in particular in and the development of new technology and the acceleration of new technology is the manufacturers in the market essentially not knowing where to go, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then not knowing where to finance for, right? Um, on the kind of role of government and finance, um, you know, I, I started my comments by talking about how the financial sector is getting woke to the risk, but the government is also a financier, mm. right? We have a balance sheet just, as, just like everybody else does, and our cost side is growing from the impacts from climate change. Yep. What's happening in Houston this week is the fourth extreme intense weather event in four years. I don't know if they've rated it as a one in 500 or one in 100 or whatever, but they had three one in 500 rain events that caused significant economic and financial losses to the city and the state and FEMA, um, that will increase. So these impacts from a warmer planet, um, so it's the adaptation side, not the, not the energy side, but the, the adaptation side, this, this risk of um, the warming and the impacts that it has on water and food and agriculture and even people in Houston's ability to go to work is real. It's very this real. This is real. So, and this will hit the government balance sheet first, mm. right? So this is, it's, it's where all of our incentives are aligned. doesn't matter what party you're in. 
from the perspective of the costs that we're going to incur if we don't start addressing this on a multiple level approach. So yes, let's, let's accelerate this to reduce our energy, uh, you know, to increase the energy efficiency and reduce our, our um, energy output and get people kind of cooled. And in the process, the role of government from a financing perspective, government, I mean, John Room <coughs> talked a lot about what the development finance institutions do for blending and accelerating investment in emerging markets, but every government around the world does this um, in one way, shape, or form or another. We have in the United States a number of different financial mechanisms tied to different agencies that do accelerate investment in certain areas. Mm. Um, some of them are better designed than others. But the idea that government can catalyze investment at the point that it comes out of the RD&D into the deployment to hand off like a baton to the private sector to scale up is not new. Mm. Um, there's also, you know, my, you know, my kind of remarks about the ecosystem. There's also local and state and, and municipality approaches to accelerating investment. Um, there's a number of um, financial mechanisms, green banks that have been set up to accelerate energy investments. They're, you know, hodgepodge. Um, New York has a green bank. Connecticut has a green bank. Uh, Michigan has a um, program called Michigan Saves that accelerates energy efficiency and renewable at the local level. Those things need to proliferate, mm. right? Because if you do it at the macro level or the federal level or the countrywide level, you still don't potentially you still potentially haven't solved that local level. So how do you get kind of every part of government involved to accelerate this investment with the idea that it's a little bit of public money to catalyze a little bit of a lot of private investment, that yeah. blended finance approach, that concessional finance approach. And like you said at the beginning of your remarks, it's sort of an all of the above approach um, is not just something that's relevant to the energy space, but it's the financing for energy space needs to be an all of the above uh, approach. And, and we've done a really good job for big projects. Yeah. Investor, particularly on the energy side, I mean, you know, you don't, for the most part, need a lot of concessional types money for big energy, renewable energy type of work. But as you get low, you know, down the kind of ecosystem and as the investments become smaller tickets or more bespoke, you really do need solutions there. Yeah. Eric? I, I would pick up on something that Jason mentioned about innovation uh, and the American University. I, I really believe that uh, the American University is in need uh, of a, a, a real reinvention uh, to make it more relevant for the 21st century. A, a lot of the seed corn for innovation and technologies that eventually make it to market in impactful deployment uh, is the university system. And the federal government makes an enormous investment um, in, in that enterprise uh, mm -hmm. through, through the federal funding agencies. You know, that's, those are public sector dollars. That's plumbers in Iowa giving up real money and people expect uh, return um, on investment. I think that in the 20th century, the 20th century was very much uh, uh, the, an era of, of the, the sort of reductionist era in science, where we were going to take every little butterfly wing apart and understand exactly why the light reflected off it the way it did. And I think that that made a lot of sense uh, for the 20th century. I think that much of that fundamental knowledge now is known, is understood. 
You can always know more, but at some point, counting ever more precisely how many angels will fit on the head of a pin, um, you know, you, you, you got to wonder if that's something that's worthwhile. And I think that the 21st century university uh, needs to be a place that takes that fundamental knowledge, that base that was built over the last uh, 50 or 100 years, and uses that to address society's uh, greatest challenges in a very real and a very tangible way. So I think that the American university is, is, in, is very much in, in, in need of reinvention uh, to, to be a more relevant model. A few months ago, I was down at the Research Triangle Park yep. in North Carolina. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, it could be. So it, the Research Triangle uh, in the 1950s created the Research Triangle Institute, RTI. That yep. was a joint effort of uh, Duke University of North Carolina and North Carolina State University uh, that was designed to commercialize uh, or, or deploy, develop technologies that were invent invented at uh, the constituent universities. Over time, RTI sort of drifted away uh, from the universities and became a standalone entity uh, unto itself, and it's not really tethered to the universities anymore. But it could be. Um, it, things like that, you know, what Michael Crow has done, for instance, at Arizona State University, I think, in many ways could be a model. Why do we still organize academic disciplines uh, the way that we do? It's not really clear that that's uh, appropriate. Uh, for the, the modern university. So I think that, that some smart people need to think about what the appropriate model for the 21st century university is. I really like that, thank you. Um, let's open it up to a few questions like Kartike did uh, earlier. I think I'm gonna bundle a few of these. So I'm also cognizant that I'm standing in between you and wine. Right. <laughs> so uh, I'm uh, okay with, yes, absolutely. Uh, let's take here and then here. Old institution. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Uh, Gina Hall from the Carbon Trust. A uh, question for, for Eric. Um, Gina McCarthy in her opening speech talked a lot about equity and justice and fairness with energy um, and cooling. And I'm wondering with Breakthrough Energy Ventures, clearly you, you, you were looking for lots of exciting answers to lots of big, big issues. Is there a, are your investors, are, is there an equity piece to what they're looking at as well? What mm. other sorts of lenses might there be? I think that's a great question. I'm sure Stacy and maybe some of the other panelists will have some thoughts. And then there was a question here. Thank you. Um, Rachel Carrillo, I'm a writer and um, been involved in renewable energy from building and getting up on rooftops to um, touring wind turbines and or touring wind turbine factories. Anyway, I my my question is twofold. One is um, in response to the 2.3 million jobs that energy efficiency um, is is currently providing. Um, so I guess this is directed to to Jason. I'm wondering where and how the the Green New Deal can fit in or fold into that as it, as it stands now or as it can be truly scaled up or, or envisioned. And then my, my other question is for Eric about um, if Breakthrough Energy Ventures is currently funding at a high level or any level the cooling projects and if, um, if you're also contributing in some capacity to the global, uh, the Green Climate Fund, and what the Green Climate Fund looks like for cooling. It's two separate questions, thank you. Excellent, thanks. I think what we'll do is we'll start with Eric and we'll just go down the line, and, and if folks have uh, responses to those, 
Um, I'll, I'll use the moderator's prerogative to ask the final question after we're done with this round. But uh, Eric, over to you. Um, so, so I think uh, equity, uh, it, it depends a little bit what you mean by that term. I, our investors are very much focused on impact in the sense of uh, they want to see impactful deployment of technologies that mitigate the production of anthropogenic greenhouse gases. And we have drawn sort of a line in the sand and said we will only invest in technologies uh, that have the potential to mitigate at least half a gigaton per year, or 1% uh, of global emissions. So the idea is you're sort of swinging, uh, you're sort of swinging for fences. Um, I think that, you know, um, my investors are capitalists and they believe that the best way to deploy technology is through you know the capitalist system i mean bill is the permanent chairman uh, of my board you, you know mukesh ambani jack ma uh, hasso plotner i mean th these are people who who clearly believe and so um so so we're interested in developing and deploying impactful technologies but i think we believe that the way that you do that uh is is through capitalism which includes this sort of equity ownership piece. absolutely Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then, uh, so breakthrough, so, so we are not invested in any other fund right at the moment. Uh, we are beginning to develop some specialty uh, vehicles. We recently announced a partnership with the European Union. So we're setting up a fund uh, that's 100 million euros, half funded by us, half funded by the European Investment Bank uh, that will focus on Europe. You'll see us develop partnerships with other geographies uh, that look like that. But right now, no, we're not investing in any other funds. Okay, Stacey? Um, maybe I'll speak to the GCF question. I, you know, I, we know a lot about the GCF and we work with them occasionally. Um, but I think, um, and I think they're open for ideas around cooling. I mean, you can go to their website and see their eligibility criteria and this would fit. Has to be emerging markets, but um, this would fit. I think um, one thing that you, you know, should be mindful of with the GCF is that it is a process and it's not um, a short process. One of the things that I think um, John was referring to in his remarks was some of these international funds need to get better at being more efficient themselves, no pun intended, in getting their money out the door. I should add that we have not funded anything in cooling yet, but we're extremely interested in the space. Probably more so after today, right? Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Desired effect achieved. Uh, Bill? I'd go back to equity globally. Um, you know, really, everybody should have the opportunity to get a job, work hard, make money, buy a heater, a cooler, a car, provide for their kids. Again, I think that we need to create that environment. I think it's very exciting, however, to try to lower the cost of best technology through innovation. Mm. Because I don't remember how, um, I remember a television set used to be $400, and that was for like a six-inch TV. <laughs> I, think, I think that's how we can help the developing countries. I really do. I also call attention to the excellent work of the International Energy Agency in mm. um, helping alleviate poverty by access to electricity. There's a tremendous amount of good information at the World Bank and IEA that I think policymakers should, should be using. And just one comment about Ernie Moniz, we're classmates at MIT. I believe in all of the above, too. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, I know your organization for a long time, yeah. uh, but you haven't been president of it since 1978. No, no. Oh, <laughs> I, I, that's okay. Just the last year. Okay. So, uh, well, um, and I'll speak to the, the Green New Deal question. 
um, you know, the <clears throat> I think any anything that that really underscores the urgency of climate change um, is is good for the conversation right now. And I think the Green New Deal has done that, especially in the United States. Uh, and you know, when you look at climate change and you start to think about it in terms of solutions, which is where I would like to focus the conversation. Um, energy efficiency is huge. It's uh, globally, it has to be 40%, according to IEA, has to be 40% of the solution to reach the, uh, the objectives of the Paris Climate Accord. So if we were all eating a five-piece pizza, that's two pieces of the pizza that has to be energy efficiency. Mm. Um, so, but, and the question is, and I think that this is a question that, um, that legislators and, and policymakers and uh, you know, smart NGOs are getting at, how do we do that? How do we chart that path forward in a way uh, that benefits everybody? And uh, in the case of energy, benefits the folks that would you know, benefit the most from reduced energy costs. Um, you know, there's a, there's a utility uh, president who likes to say, you know, how do we make sure that there's universal access to energy efficiency? And I really like that term because right now there's not, and there's a lot of structural and behavioral uh, barriers, cost barriers, financing barriers, and we didn't get into the whole barriers conversation, but there's a lot of reasons why we're not going as mm. fast as we could um, because of all these barriers. And, and it, I, it, for me, it harkens back to the, the McKinsey study of 2009, which I think was a seminal um, energy report that said, look, we could be saving $130 billion a year in the United States through energy efficiency mm. with off-the-shelf technologies. No, I mean, this gets to that with scale. With no question. innovation. With no innovation. These were all cost-effective, net present value, positive technologies that if we scaled, could be saving the country $130 billion a year, creating you know, uh, literally millions of jobs, uh, but they're not getting scaled up in a way that makes sense. And a lot of it is because of the barriers uh, that we're trying to get at through things like this prize, um, including finance, including the, uh, the, the, the various structural barriers. Anyway, um, so, but, but to the extent that, that we think about the urgency of climate change, the demand and the call for solutions, I think, gets louder and louder. And again, that's going to look towards, you know, I think it's an all above the strategy, but energy efficiency is, you know, biggest thing on the, on the target. I, I know it's time for a glass of wine when I'm having trouble envisioning how to slice a pizza into five pieces. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, a pizza, six pieces. A pizza, six pieces. A pizza with it's, it's five slices. Two slices. I think, yeah, I'm just having a, a, a hard time Maybe doing that. Maybe it's more caffeine. Um, I, the last question I have for the panelists is um, take a second to think about what you want to leave with everybody in this audience about scale, uh, about cooling. Um, think about it in terms of uh, 280 characters or less. Um, and while you're thinking about that, I just wanted to take a moment to invite everyone to the reception. Um, and I wanted to thank, the, uh, on behalf of CSIS, our program the Energy and National Security Program, the Rocky Mountain Institute, Conservation X Labs, the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. And I wanted to give a special shout out to Lisa Highland, Ian Barlow, and Chad Gallinat for, for really being the, the brains and the energy 
behind this. Um, so let's give them a quick round of applause. And then let's do reverse order. We'll end with Eric. So Jason, what's, what's your tweet that you want to leave us with? Well, I, um, a couple of examples I wasn't able to get into, and I'm not going to go into them very much. But I, I do want to stress that there are opportunities to, to um, partner with, with industry and, and business and targeted audience. Um, there's been so many great examples where you know, market-driven solutions have had um, tremendous impact, and I think of the advanced rooftop unit campaign that was done at the DOE. Um, you know, 60% of commercial buildings have these rooftop unit air conditioners. We worked with industry to come together and, and think of higher efficiency uh, standards. They were concerned that there wasn't going to be the demand. Um, the, they, they decided to, again, do some of the breakthrough innovation, and, and now through that campaign, uh, 77,000 rooftop units have either been retrofitted or replaced hmm. with high efficiency units. A huge success story and again it's all about partnership with both industry and um, you know the targeted end use. And then the other one I would mention um, is the Better Buildings Challenge which has just been one of these unbelievable uh, um, you know government, business, public-private partnerships. Uh, they wanted to reduce energy use by 20% in the built environment. They partnered with um, over 250 uh, commercial building actors uh, that committed to 20% reduction across their portfolio over 10 years. They've now saved, uh, they now reach 11 billion square feet of real estate and they've saved $3 trillion, or $3 billion, sorry, the, the T's. Yeah, we got getting, a little getting, excited getting with the trillion, yeah. And then they, they, the only other thing, I'd, just to point out, is, is you know, market, um, transformation tools like Lead and Energy Star. I mean, those make a. We didn't get into that. Yeah, but those make a. They, they make a big difference. Um, and you know, Energy Star is ubiquitous in the United States. Ninety percent of Americans recognize the Energy Star brand. It saves four hundred fifty billion dollars a year. Um, and those are those are also proven models. And again, I think they're very much in the context of this scaling conversation. Excellent. Thanks. Bill, what's your tweet that you want to leave us with? It's, it's about accounting, energy accounting. Going back 30 years, Amory Lovins and I started to think about uh, casting how much many BTUs in a glass. How do we look at energy systems? Our entire economic system is built around money, which is great. But if you thought of it in terms of energy and energy accounting and externalities of energy, think of energy, it's probably the most important topic of, of, of humankind. It's cause of great celebration and great, uh, great wars that have gone over it. I just mentioned human genome as an example because I'm going to end with that. 1986, um, scientists at DOE said we need to understand radiation's effect on cells. They came up to me, they said we need $4 million. At that time, $4 million was really nothing. So we gave $4 million to the scientists and the reason was we compensated people of nuclear testing that said they had cancer. So okay, was it did you smoke, or was it hereditary, or were you actually there looking at those binoculars at the above ground testing? And, and that's how it began. It began with innovation. That Excellent. today is one of the leading, I would say, um, uh, um, points of human history in biology. Now, NIH, I met with the NIH director the other day. He said, you know, uh, that's a secret the DOE actually started, but we really appreciate it. Mm. So you never know what's going to come out of basic science. But if you have the right motivation, you know, you really can change lives. Excellent. Stacy? Um, the tweet. 
Well, they, they, those have been they, tweet yeah. threads. <laughs> the tweet threads. Sorry. Uh, so we, can, we can go back to tweet if you want to. But. Well, uh, look, I mean, um, I'll, I'll kind of start, where, I'll end where I started, which is, um, you know, this is one of the most, um, uh, the, one of the biggest investment opportunities, the hottest investment opportunities for mm -hmm. investors, um, and they need to know about it. Yep. Um, and um, the prize is great because it will kind of raise awareness. Um, it'll get kind of the technological innovation there, um, and and um, and then we need to kind of crowd in the financing to scale it up. Excellent. Eric, last word to you. Energy operates at scales that dwarf any other human activity. An impactful deployment in this space takes a very long time and enormous quantities of money, and that's why it's so critical for us to act now. Please join me at tweet. the bar, and please join me <laughs> in thanking our panelists. <laughs> it's really nice to meet you, Jay. Good, you. Good luck, and all you're doing. Congratulations on the baby. Yeah.